Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire. I'm one of your hosts, Emmett, also known as Poor Quentin. And I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And welcome to the 192nd episode of the Nauticast, titled The Ways of War, an analysis of A Storm of Swords Daenerys 4, in which Danny takes down Yunkai in a single chapter. Astapor, you know, that took two or three, but that just wasn't efficient enough for Daenerys Targaryen, mother of dragons and manager of projects. Danny's really living that grind set lifestyle. <laughs> Danny rises and grinds every day. Who would be the best influencer in the world of A Song of Ice and Fire? I know like Renly and Marjorie are like the obvious answer to that, but part of me thinks Melisandre would have quite the following. Yeah, Melisandre just has branding down like top to bottom. Her <laughs> SEO is impeccable. <laughs> it's what she calls the trappings of power. Melisandre would probably do terrifyingly well today. Something to consider. So, as always, our spoiler warning, prepare to be spoiled for all five novels, the three Duncan Egg novellas, histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones and House of the Dragon, the TV shows, anything and everything. Our question this episode comes from our patron, Alyssa, who asks, Do you think there is any chance at all that Rob's bones will be returned to Winterfell? The journey of Ned's bones is a cause for a lot of discussion, but I don't usually see Rob's remains brought up, as we don't technically know where they end up after the incident, trademark. There's precedent for a Stark erected in the crypt with no remains to bury, Brandon the shipwright, presumably Ricard Stark, but George's interest in burial traditions throughout the series make me feel invested in Rob being put to rest properly. Much thanks to you both for all the great work. And thanks, Alyssa, for the question. Two hilarious things there. One, we should always call the Red Wedding the incident <laughs> from now on. That's what we should refer to it as. There's a there's a bit in Calvin and Hobbes where every so often they'll refer to the noodle incident as something terrible that Calvin <laughs> did. And he always goes like full apoplectic with rage when anyone brings it up. We never hear what the noodle incident is. Just assume Calvin's guilty. That's hysterical. But also like uh, presumably Ricard Stark. Yeah, I never thought about that. Ricard Stark, not much, not much to return there, unfortunately. But so, yeah, so what do you think about that, Manu? Where are, where are Rob's bones going to end up, if anywhere? Yeah, that's a great question because I never really thought about this before. I just took the whole, like, Grey Wind's head on Rob's body and just assumed the phrase went full desecration and just threw his bones just out in the dumpster. Um, they went through, you know, a landfill and got compacted into a small <laughs> little cube, uh, all that kind of good stuff. I'm sitting on them right now. <laughs> Uh, so I, I have no idea if or when his bones will come back, but I do like the point about how there are Stark statues in the crypts for those who they probably don't have bodies for. Um, and this could be a way that once, you know, the Starks in some fashion overthrow Bolton rule in Winterfell, whether it's Sansa or Jon or Rickon or some combination of them, um, this could be something for them to come around towards. It's like, hey, let's build... Let's build a statue for Big Bro because, you know, that's a great way to kind of commemorate the Starks coming back for Winterfell and a time for wolves. And especially if we're going to get Jon Snow possibly being a king of the north in succession of Rob or, you know, succeeding him coming after him, uh, then, you know, this that could all have some kind of narrative and, you know, thematic poignance. So that's probably where I guess it would come up if it does. Yeah, I love that idea of them building a statue for Rob, just like Ned built ones for Brandon and Lyanna. That would come full circle. I think that's perfect. Uh, yeah, I, I I lean against what's left of Rob making it home. That's part of what made what the phrase did so horrible is that they removed any chance for closure. I mean, that's uh, what they did with Catelyn was, uh, from what we hear, it was like they were just trying to make fun of how the, the Tully funeral rites that we see very earnestly and movingly with Hoster. And they were like, let's let's cut her throat and throw her naked in the river. 
I think it's that might be one of the things that isn't solved and kind of an open wound that they that they have to kind of live with is that they're they're never getting Rob back. And then when they did get Catalan back, it was kind of horrible. <laughs> it's not always not always good to get them back. So thank you, Alyssa, for the question. If you have any questions that you want to force us to answer here on the Not A Cast podcast, you can head on over to patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, where our $10 and above patrons get to force us to answer their questions, along with early access to our episodes, exclusive episodes every month, and a bunch more benefits. But we are here today to climb the, the Mount Everest, <laughs> the, the K2 of chapters here, A Storm of Swords, Daenerys 4, so let's gear up for the synopsis. Danny and Jorah Mormont are riding through a forest and up a sandstone ridge. At the top, Mormont says they're near enough. Near enough to what? The army put forward by Yunkai, second of the three cities of Slaver's Bay, and as annoying as most middle children. Danny takes a look. Barristan, I mean Arston Whitebeard, has been teaching her how to swiftly count up an army, and she judges that the Yunkish host numbers 5,000. Mormont agrees and points out that it's not just Yunkish slave soldiers. There are mounted sellswords on both flanks, the Second Sons on the left, and the Stormcrows on the right, with roughly 500 men apiece. The sellswords even have their own banners. I guess Yunkai's whip-wielding harpy wasn't over the top enough on its own. What a subtle image. Speaking of which, Danny turns her attention to the Yunkai themselves, whose officers look exactly like Astapors. At a distance, anyway. Danny asks if they lead slave soldiers. Jorah confirms they do, but they're no match for the Unsullied. Yunkai makes its money from sex slaves, not soldiers. What say you? Can we defeat this army? Easily, Sir Jorah said, but not bloodlessly. Blood aplenty had soaked into the bricks of Astapor the day that city fell, though little of it belonged to her or hers. We might win a battle here, but at such cost we cannot take the city. That is ever a risk, Khaleesi. Astapor was complacent and vulnerable. Yunkai is forewarned. Danny thinks that she has the slavers well outnumbered, but the swords give her pause, because she knows from her time with the Dothraki that even a relatively small cavalry force can punch above their weight and wipe out all but the most disciplined infantry. Of course, Danny has the most disciplined infantry in the world, the Unsullied, but she also has a bunch of former slaves who could be massacred in a cavalry charge. The slavers like to talk, she said. Send word that I will hear them this evening in my tent, and invite the captains of the sellsword companies to call on me as well. But not together. The storm crows at midday, the second sun's two hours later. As you wish, Sir Jorah said. But if they do not come, they'll come. They will be curious to see the dragons, and hear what I might have to say. And the clever ones will see it for a chance to gauge my strength. Danny's giving them a lot of credit assuming there are any clever ones. I'm still in doubt. They ride back to their own camp, guarded by a ditch for which the Unsullied are busy making stakes. They're overseen by the young man they've chosen to be their commander, who goes by the name Grey Worm. After the fall of Astapor, Danny had done away with the tradition of forcing the Unsullied to memorize a new name every day. Most of them had taken up their birth names, or at least those who could still remember them. Others renamed themselves after heroes, gods, weapons, gems, even flowers. I love the idea of this badass hulking infantryman named Daffodil or Peony. But Grey Worm? He stayed Grey Worm, telling Danny that his birth name was cursed, and he associates Grey Worm with the day Danny liberated him. Whatever you call him, he's good at his job, or so Jorah has said, and he's more than ready to take on the Yunkish army. Danny orders him to spare any slave soldier who surrenders or just runs for it. Any survivors can join their cause. Grey Worm agrees, and Danny asks him to join her when the sellswords arrive. Danny rides through the camp to her golden pavilion, taking note of her other camp, which is pretty much the opposite of the Unsullied one. 
There's no structure to it, no defenses, and oh yeah, it's five times as big as the Unsullied camp. Danny had put a council of freedmen in charge of Astapor, but thousands of other freedmen had decided to follow her to Yunkai. Unfortunately, they didn't have much to bring with them. Very few have steeds or weapons, and it's getting hard to keep them all fed. But, Danny thinks, once she gave them back the choice of how to live their lives, she couldn't object if they used that choice to come with her. You can't stuff freedom back into Pandora's box. Jorah, slavery is a-okay, Mormont, thinks differently. What a shock. Danny's other sidekicks are waiting at her tent. Strong, Belwis, and Barristan set. I'm sorry, again, Arston Whitebeard. Thank the gods that that disguise won't last much longer. Belwis and Whitebeard have become her bodyguards in place of her blood riders, who Danny needs to lead what little cavalry she has. Danny tells Arston that the Yunkai are preparing for war, and asks Missandei if the slavers speak Valyrian. Yes, your grace, the child said, a different dialect than Astapor's, yet close enough to understand. The slavers name themselves the Wise Masters. Wise? Danny sat cross-legged on a cushion, and Viserion spread his white and gold wings and flapped to her side. We shall see how wise they are, she said as she scratched the dragon's scaly head behind the horns. Spoiler alert, not very. But before we get to the so-called wise masters, Jorah brings in the captains of the Stormcrow cell swords. There are three of them, all equal in authority, or so they claim. Prendal Nagezen was a thick-set Giscari with a broad face and dark hair growing gray. Salor the Bald had a twisting scar across his pale Carthine cheek, and Dario Naharis was flamboyant even for a Tyroshi. His beard was cut into three prongs and dyed blue, the same color as his eyes and the curly hair that fell to his collar. His pointed mustachios were painted gold. His clothes were all shades of yellow. A foam of mirish lace the color of butter spilled from his collar and cuffs. His doublet was sewn with brass medallions in the shape of dandelions, and ornamental goldwork crawled up his high leather boots to his thighs. Gloves of soft yellow suede were tucked into a belt of gilded rings, and his fingernails were enameled blue. Wow, that's... who? that's a lot. But Dario lets his clothes do the talking for now, as Prendel is the one who speaks for the Stormcrows. You do well to take your rabble elsewhere, he said. You took Astapor by treachery, but Yunkai shall not fall so easily. Five hundred of your Stormcrows against ten thousand of my Unsullied, said Danny. I am only a young girl and do not understand the ways of war, yet these odds seem poor to me. You know, I think sarcastic Danny is my favorite Danny. Prendal says his five hundred don't stand alone, but Danny replies that the second sons might switch sides, and that the Yunkish soldiers are hardly worthy of the name. Danny offers to let the Stormcrows keep the gold they got from Yunkai if they came over to her now, but that they'll receive no such mercy once the battle starts. Woman, you bray like an ass, and make no more sense. Woman, she chuckled, is that meant to insult me? I would return the slap if I took you for a man. Again, great chapter for these patented Danny clapbacks. Danny lists off her titles, 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 but Prendall calls her a horse lord's whore, and threatens to force her to fuck his horse. Belwas, in turn, threatens to cut off his tongue, but Danny refuses him. It's not a polite thing to do to emissaries. She tells the Stormcrows to go back and talk it over. She wants their answer tomorrow. Prendall says the answer is no, but Dario glances back as he leaves, and his eyes say yes. Next up is the commander of the Second Sons. Only one guy this time, but with enough attitude for three. His name is Miro, he's from Bravos. he calls himself the Titan's Bastard, and that's just about the most pleasant thing about him. He drinks a full cup of wine in one gulp, and starts in on the charm offensive. I believe I fucked your twin sister in a pleasure house back home. Or was it you? I think not. I would remember a man of such magnificence, I have no doubt. Yes, that is so. No woman has ever forgotten the Titan's Bastard. The Bravosi held out his cup to Jiqui. What say you take those clothes off and come sit on my lap? If you please me, I might bring the second sons over to your side. 
If you bring the second sons over to my side, I might not have you gilded. The big man laughed. Little girl, another woman once tried to gild me with her teeth. She has no teeth now, but my sword is as long and thick as ever. Shall I take it out and show you? No need. After my eunuchs cut it off, I can examine it at my leisure. Miro might be the worst, but Danny's banter is only getting better. Danny asks him, as she did the Stormcrows, why he thinks he stands a White Walker's chance in hell against her unsullied. Miro says they've faced worse odds, and anyway, the second sons have him, Paragon of Chivalry, leading them on. In that case, Danny says, Jorah, you better be sure to kill him first. Uh, so close, Danny, but wrong night. Miro refuses to turn tail and run. Why not fight for Danny instead? Well, he'd love to let Danny kiss his sword, wink wink, but he promised to fight for Yunkai, and clearly this guy is all about his honor. Danny promises him something resembling lifetime employment. Whole cities and continents worth of wealth. But Miro insists on adding her to his benefits package. She doesn't say yes, but also doesn't say no. And shockingly, Jorah gives off bad vibes at this. Again, who could have seen this coming? Danny, once again, asks Miro to take the night to think it over. He asks for some wine to make the thinking go down smoother, and negotiates his way up to a wagon full. Got a lot of second sons to keep drunk, after all. After Miro leaves, Arston, totally not a Selmy, tells Danny that Miro is infamous, even in Westeros, and hell must be freezing over because Jorah agrees with him. Miro can't be trusted. Nor can Danny count on the Stormcrows. Prandall is Giscari, and it seems like he's taking the fall of Astapor, personally. But Danny keeps the glass half full, waiting to see what the Yunkish masters themselves have to say. They show up in the most stylish entourage of them all. Horses and camels and huge-ass helms to maintain their equally enormous hairdos. Their leader, Grazdan Moeras, has a unicorn horn in his hair. Uh, my guess is there's a warrant out for this guy in Skagos. Ancient and glorious is Yonkai, the queen of cities, he said, when Danny welcomed him to her tent. Our walls are strong, our nobles proud and fierce, our common folk without fear. Ours is the blood of ancient Gis, whose empire was old when Valyria was yet a squalling child. You are wise to sit and speak, Khaleesi. You shall find no easy conquest here. Good. My unsullied will relish a bit of a fight. She looked to Grey Worm, who nodded. Grazdan dismisses Danny's liberation of the Unsullied as useless, but Grey Worm doesn't even flinch, as Grazdan threatens to re-enslave them and use them to retake Astapor from the freedmen. Next, Grazdan threatens to sell Danny into sex slavery, gain a nice profit from the last Targaryen. Danny blows right past that and just says, It's nice to be recognized around here. I pride myself on my knowledge of the savage, senseless West. Grazdan spread his hands, a gesture of conciliation. And yet, why should we speak thus harshly to one another? It is true that you committed savageries in Astapor, but we Yonkai are a most forgiving people. Your quarrel is not with us, your grace. Why squander your strength against our mighty walls when you will need every man to regain your father's throne in far Westeros? Yonkai wishes you only well in that endeavor, and to prove the truth of that, I have brought you a gift. Said gift turns out to be a chest with 50,000 golden marks in it. Ah, I get it. If Danny takes it, she's the mark. Now it all makes sense. Grazdan says it's all hers, as long as she gets the fuck out of Slaver's Bay, now if not sooner. Danny takes a look, letting the coins fall through her fingers in what is in no way a metaphor. Very pretty. I wonder how many chests like this I shall find when I take your city. He chuckled. None. For that you shall never do. I have a gift for you as well. She slammed the chest shut. Three days. On the morning of the third day, send out your slaves, all of them. Every man, woman, and child shall be given a weapon and as much food, clothing, coin, and goods as he or she can carry. 
These they shall be allowed to choose freely from among their master's possessions as payment for their years of servitude. When all the slaves have departed, you will open your gates and allow my unsullied to enter and search your city, to make certain none remain in bondage. If you do this, Yunkai will not be burned or plundered, and none of your people shall be molested. The wise masters will have the peace they desire, and will have proved themselves wise indeed. What say you? I say you are mad. Am I? Danny shrugged, and said, Dracadus. The dragons answered. Rhaegal hissed and smoked, Viserion snapped, and Drogon spat swirling red-black flame. It touched the drape of Grasden's tokar, and the silk caught in half a heartbeat. Golden marks spilled across the carpets as the envoy stumbled over the chest, shouting curses and beating at his arm until Whitebeard flung a flagon of water over him to douse the flames. You swore I should have safe conduct, the Yonkish envoy wailed. Do all the Yonkai whine so over a singed tokar? I shall buy you a new one, if you deliver up your slaves within three days. Elsewise, Drogon shall give you a warmer kiss. She wrinkled her nose. You've soiled yourself. Take your gold and go, and see that the wise masters hear my message. Grazdan Moeraz pointed a finger. You shall rue this arrogance, whore. These little lizards will not keep you safe, I promise you. We will fill the air with arrows if they come within a league of Yonkai. Do you think it is so hard to kill a dragon? Harder than to kill a slaver? Three days, Grazdan. Tell them. By the end of the third day, I will be in Yunkai, whether you open your gates for me or no. Woo! Great shit. Just had to read every word of that. Night falls moonless and starless, the only light coming from Danny's campfires. She summons Jorah and her blood riders, telling them that an hour past midnight should be the right time. Well, of course, Ricaro replies. Whatever you say, boss. Uh, one quick question, though. Right time for what? To attack, of course. You see, Danny told the Cell Swords that she wanted their answers tomorrow but didn't say anything about what she might do tonight. Her campfires will blind the enemy scouts, and anyway, the Dothraki will be able to take care of them easily. Once they have, Danny means to send her Kalasar right down the center of the enemy formation, and hit them from both flanks with the Unsullied. She smiled. To be sure, I am only a young girl. I know little of war. What do you think, my lords? I think you are Rhaegar Targaryen's sister, Sir Joris said with a rueful half-smile. Aye, said Arston Whitebeard, and the queen as well. The boys are getting along. Enjoy while it lasts. While they're getting ready for the attack, the Unsullied catch a spy. It's Dario Naharis. Jorah brings him in, and Danny reflects on how totally opposite they are, from hair to size to skin color. And that's before we get into attitude. Dario claims that the Stormcrows will follow Danny now. And when she asks for proof, he presents the heads of Prendall and Selor, his comrades. Former comrades. Extremely former. Danny asks why Dario killed his fellow Stormcrows as the dragons wake up at the smell of snacks. Cause you're a snack, says Dario, and also, they bored me. Danny thinks that Dario looks pretty good himself, even if his fancy clothes have seen better days. Then there are his swords, an arak and a stiletto, with matching hilts of naked golden women. Danny asks if he knows how to use them. Prendal and Salor would tell you so, if dead men could talk. I count no day as lived unless I have loved a woman, slain a foeman, and eaten a fine meal, and the days that I have lived are as numberless as the stars in the sky. I make of slaughter a thing of beauty, and many a tumbler and fire dancer has wept to the gods that they might be half so quick, a quarter so graceful. I would tell you the names of all the men I have slain, but before I could finish your dragons would grow large as castles, the walls of Yunkai would crumble into yellow dust, and winter would come and go and come again. 
Again, wow, that's, that's a lot, too much. But Danny, unlike me, loves Dario's swagger and takes him into her service, so to speak. Danny asks Dario to lead the Stormcrows against the Yonkish rear, again, so to speak. Incel Jorah protests right on time, but Danny points to her dragon's lunchtime as proof that Dario is on the level. After Dario leaves, Jorah tells Danny that she screwed up big time trusting someone so untrustworthy. You can't trust men, they're all liars. What about you? says Danny. By the law of verbal traps, aren't you untrustworthy? Or are you the one exception? Jorah says that's not what he meant, but Danny points out that he talks shit about every man she encounters. Exactly how naive does he think she is? Your grace, she bowled over him. You have been a better friend to me than any I have known. A better brother than Viserys ever was. You are the first of my queen's guard, the commander of my army, my most valued counselor, my good right hand. I honor and respect and cherish you, but I do not desire you, Jorah Mormont, and I'm weary of your trying to push every other man in the world away from me, so I must needs rely on you and you alone. It will not serve, and it will not make me love you any better. Say it again, say it louder, say it every day. Jorah swallows his feelings and follows his orders. After he leaves, Danny feels sad and lonely, so she collapses into bed to play with her pets. Most relatable moment in the whole story? My sources say yes. My sources are cats. Mary Mazdor had promised that she would never bear a living child. House Targaryen will end with me. That made her sad. You must be my children, she told the dragons. My three fierce children. Arson says dragons live longer than men. So you will go on after I am dead. Well, according to season eight, at least one of them will. Wrestling with Drogon can only distract Danny for so long, though. Waiting for battle to break out is hard, especially since she won't be fighting in it herself. If only Drogon was big enough to ride. Just wait, Khaleesi. Just you wait. Eventually, Danny calls in Arston to tell her stories about Rhaegar, like the one on the ship about, he, about how he decided he must be a warrior. Viserys told Danny that Big Bro was always winning tourneys. Arston says that it's not his place to say Viserys was wrong, but yeah, he was wrong. Rhaegar didn't enjoy playing at war the way Robert did or Jaime. He was a lover, not a fighter. Rhaegar did ride well at Attorney at Storm's End, defeating such luminaries as Stefan Baratheon, Jason Malister, and the Red Viper of Dorne. Hey, we just met him. But Rhaegar ultimately lost the final tilt to a Kingsguard knight. You know, just one of them. Which one, Whitebeard? Any particular reason you're leaving that name out? Danny did not want to hear about Rhaegar being unhorsed. But what tourneys did my brother win? Your Grace, the old man hesitated. He, he won the greatest tourney of them all. Which was that? Danny demanded. The tourney Lord Went staged at Harrenhal beside the God's Eye, in the year of the False Spring. A notable event. Besides the jousting, there was a melee in the old style fought between seven teams of knights, as well as archery and axe-throwing, a horse race, a tournament of singers, a mummer show, and many feasts and frolics. Lord Went was as open-handed as he was rich. The lavish purses he proclaimed drew hundreds of challengers. Even your royal father came to Harrenhal, when he had not left the Red Keep for long years. The greatest lords and mightest champions of the Seven Kingdoms rode in that tourney, and the Prince of Dragonstone bested them all. Danny's heard this story before, she's just like us for real, and she knows how it ends. Rhaegar crowned Lyanna Stark as the Queen of Love and Booty. Excuse me, beauty. That never made sense to Danny. Rhaegar's wife, Elia Martell, was right there. Seems pretty freaking awkward. Worse yet, after that, Rhaegar ran off with Lyanna. What did Elia ever do to deserve that? Arston, once again, does his best to avoid having an opinion, saying he has no clue what Rhaegar was thinking. 
Apparently, Viserys once told Danny that it was all her fault for not being born earlier, so Rhaegar could have married her instead and been happy. We don't have time to unpack all of that here. Put a pin in it for later. Regardless, though, Arston says there may have been no way for anyone to make Rhaegar happy. You make him sound so sour, Danny protested. Not sour, no, but there was a melancholy to Prince Rhaegar, a sense... The old man hesitated again. Say it, she urged. A sense of doom. He was born in grief, my queen, and that shadow hung over him all his days. Viserys had spoken of Rhaegar's birth only once. Perhaps the tale saddened him too much. It was the shadow of Summerhall that haunted him, was it not? Yes. And yet Summerhall was the place the prince loved best. He would go there from time to time with only his harp for company. Even the knights of the Kingsguard did not attend him there. He liked to sleep in the ruined hall beneath the moon and stars, and whenever he came back, he would bring a song. When you heard him play his high harp with the silver strings and sing of twilights and tears and the death of kings, you could not but feel that he was singing of himself and those he loved. Okay, interesting. Tell us more about Summer Hall. You're so close. Ah, no. Danny's moved on to asking about Robert. What kind of music did he like? Oh, nothing but drinking songs on Robert's Spotify wrapped. The dragons suddenly roar as one, but not out of disapproval at Robert's shitty taste in music. No, they smell blood. And here comes Jorah to report they've won the battle, taking barely a dozen casualties in the process. Just like Danny predicted, the Stormcrows betrayed the slavers, and the Second Sons were too wasted to resist. The slave soldiers ran for it, Grasden was dispatched back to Yunkai to deliver Danny's terms, and as for Miro, the Titan's bastard, well, we didn't find him, but don't worry, Your Grace, there's no way that'll pay off later. The next day, they all marched together to Yunkai, which is, from the outside, basically asked for 2.0, except yellow instead of red. Danny sits down to wait and see if her terms are accepted, and lo and behold, they are. On the morning of the third day, the city gates swung open and a line of slaves began to emerge. Danny mounted her silver to greet them. As they passed, little Missandei told them that they owed their freedom to Daenerys Stormborn, the Unburnt, Queen of the Seven Kingdoms of Westeros, and Mother of Dragons. Misa, a brown-skinned man shouted out at her. He had a child on his shoulder, a little girl, and she screamed the same word in her thin voice. Misa, Misa. Danny looked at Missandei. What are they shouting? It is Giscari, the old pure tongue. It means mother. Danny felt a lightness in her chest. I will never bear a living child, she remembered. Her hand trembled as she raised it. Perhaps she smiled. She must have, because the man grinned and shouted again, and others took up the cry. Misa, they called. Misa, Misa. They were all smiling at her, reaching for her, kneeling before her. Mela, some called her, while others cried Alela, or Kwathi, or Tato. But whatever the tongue, it all meant the same thing. Mother. They're calling me Mother. The chant grew, spread, swelled. It swelled so loud that it frightened her horse, and the mare backed and shook her head and lashed her silver-gray tail. It swelled until it seemed to shake the yellow walls of Yunkai. More slaves were streaming from the gates every moment, and as they came, they took up the call. They were running toward her now, pushing, stumbling, wanting to touch her hand, to stroke her horse's mane, to kiss her feet. Her poor blood riders could not keep them all away, and even strong Belwas grunted and growled in dismay. Sir Jorah urged her to go, but Danny remembered a dream she had dreamed in the House of the Undying. They will not hurt me, she told him. They are my children, Jorah. She laughed, put her heels into her horse, and rode to them. 
the bells in her hair ringing sweet victory. She trotted, then cantered, then broke into a gallop, her braid streaming behind. The freed slaves parted before her. Mother, they called from a hundred throats, a thousand, ten thousand. Mother, they sang, their fingers brushing her legs as she flew by. Mother, mother, mother. And that, at last, is the synopsis for A Storm of Swords, Daenerys Four. You take over, Manu. I'm going to go take a nap for like half an hour. Oh, hey, it's my first Daenerys chapter. The absolute least controversial character in all of A Song of Ice and Fire. Am I right? <laughs> as always, you are right. As much of a bummer as it is to miss out on her sack of Astapor, Danny Four represents a new normal, a ground zeroes in which her campaign to retake Westeros seems both viable and imminent. Assuming things go well in Yunkai and Marine, that is. But I do really like this chapter otherwise, as we meet a new cast of supporting characters and really dive deep into Danny's thinking, both as a commander and politician. I really couldn't ask for a better jumping on point as she begins to vie for the queendom of Slaver's Bay. Yeah, while the Dracarys chapter is obviously the crown jewel for Danny in A Storm of Swords, this is really the one that sets the pattern for her story going forward. It's wild to come back and realize how much is being set up here both politically, with the wise masters of Yunkai, who will put Danny under siege in A Dance with Dragons, and personally, with Dario hitting on Danny, which also pays off, and then some, in A Dance with Dragons. Obviously, George had a different idea as to how those elements would play out with the five-year gap that he later abandoned, but still, it's all here. And I'm still just blown away by the ambition of this chapter. Maybe not all of it works, George might be biting off more than he can chew, but that's what makes it so exhilarating. It's such a big chapter. You can feel the world hanging in the balance with every decision Danny makes, and she can feel it too. Daenerys Targaryen has been a would-be conqueror for some time now, but this chapter she really comes into her own as a military commander and politician, with an army of unsullied and a horde of freedmen at her back. As much as the focus is on the Yunkai and sellsword companies, the real meat of this chapter is learning about her new men-at-arms, and more importantly, about Danny herself and how she plots and strategizes. It's an interesting place to begin. Something I always like to take note of is how a chapter starts relative to where we left off with that POV. This is a great example. Danny's last chapter ended, of course, in fire and blood, with the fall of Astapor. And George could have kicked off this chapter in any number of ways. He could have started right where he left off, show us the rest of the sack. He could have started with Danny organizing the new Astapori government, or setting out for Yunkai, or meeting Grey Worm for the first time, which we see in the show. But instead, he starts with Danny staring down the Yunkish opposition, taking their measure, and then taking the measure of her own followers. I was thinking while I was rereading, it's funny how everyone on the wall makes fun of Bowen Marsh because his only skill is counting. He'll, he'll count the enemy up for you, I think Dolores says, says at one point. But here we see that counting up the enemy is actually pretty important, and Danny has been learning well. Like you say, this is a great way to refocus our attention. We saw Danny declare war on the world order, driven by equal parts empathy, rage, and a belief that she is fated to do so. Now we see her making decisions on a different level. Having blown everything up, she's figuring out what to do with the pieces, how to build them into something better than the evil exploitative status quo. At the same time, George chooses to start here to emphasize a major theme of Danny's story. If I look back, I am lost. The momentum of her chapters in Storm are thrilling. She's always on to the next city, the next enemy, the next set of slaves to free. Show me that horizon. Let's see what's over it. That momentum hits a brick wall in A Dance with Dragons, as the ripple effects start to catch up. George builds that into the very structure of this chapter by skipping over what happened to Astapor in the aftermath of Dracarys. 
By the end of the book, Danny will learn that she gave Astapor a butcher king, as she puts it. And that's what convinces her to stay in Marine. She's forced to look back and bring the analytical eye she develops in this chapter to bear on her own story. Surveying the new military status quo, let's start with the Unsullied, Danny's new and newly freed fighting force. We immediately see their battle preparedness. They've dug ditches and staked walls around the base camp. To micro-quote Aragorn, it is an army bred for a single purpose. Their very nature is martial. They eat, breathe, and sleep war. We'll see how that plays out down the road. I wasn't totally thrilled at how Season 8 of Thrones handled the Unsullied after the sack of King's Landing, but I think there was some truth to the fact that those who have been created only for battle are prone to violent ends, even when the violence ends. When Danny was first thinking about buying an unsullied army, Jorah argued they were perfect soldiers for a general with a conscience like her because they could not rape and they would only kill the people they were told to. We saw that play out at Astapor. Danny gave very specific orders about who the unsullied were allowed to kill and who they weren't, and as far as we can tell, those orders were followed without exception. Same thing in this chapter. Danny tells Grey Worm to spare any soldier who surrenders or runs for it, and again, those orders are followed. There's a powerful ambiguity to this. On one hand, it prevents the war crimes that are so commonly committed even by people who aren't obvious monsters, like Gregor Clegane or the Bloody Mummers. Like Jorah says, there's a beast in every man who stirs when you put a sword in his hand. It makes me think of how Jamie, later in the book, just a couple chapters actually, describes Steel Shanks Walton, Roose Bolton's uh, right-hand man. The epitome of the ordinary soldier, who lacks the constant over-the-top cruelty of the Mummers, but who will commit atrocities when their blood is up after battle, and then go home to raise their kids like nothing ever happened. The Unsullied lack both sides of that coin. They won't commit the rapes, but they also can't go home to raise the next generation in peace. There is kind of no end to the war for them. What's been done to them kind of prevents them from having a peacetime life. However you handle the dissonance between the peacetime life and the wartime life, that dissonance doesn't exist for the Unsullied. It's just such a brutal irony that the only reason they can be counted on to not commit atrocities is because of the atrocities done to them. It's like there's just there's no getting away from the blood. It's just a question of what stage in the process it's shed. Is the blood being shed to take your dick away, or is the blood being shed because you have a dick and are doing horrible things with it? Like those those are the two <laughs> options we're being given here. So while it's obviously better to have soldiers who won't sack a city under their own steam, it's not because the unsullied found a better way to live, right? It's because their individuality was taken away from them. And we recoil from that. We cherish humanity and individuality. We center free will and bodily autonomy in our understanding of human dignity. So what do we do about the fact that so many humans use their free will to violate other people's bodily autonomy? In a way, this is the core question of politics, how to balance control and freedom. Grey Worm says the Unsullied can't bear to sleep in an unfortified camp. That's good in that it guarantees the camp's protection. But is it really a good thing to have discipline sink its claws that deep into your soul? Same dynamic plays out at the Wall, which I was thinking about a lot reading this chapter, especially thinking about the, the way the Freedmen camp is described and the way Mance's Wildling camp is described, a lot of the same language. And there you have this dynamic when Stannis shows up between his iron discipline versus the Wildling's more chaotic idea of freedom. And Stannis, of course, he castrates his soldiers who rape. So it's these, these very ugly, uncomfortable questions arise when I read chapters like this. What if the state of man, unencumbered by hierarchical control, is bestial? What if the default life is nasty, brutish, and short? In other words, what if the only way we get people to do good things is to force them to? 
It sounds like a pessimistic view of human nature, but I think George has a good eye for the internal contradictions of liberty, the ways in which individual free will can itself become the source of oppression for others. Like the sol soldiers who rape have more free will than the unsullied. Are we, are we willing to say that's a good thing? But also we're not willing to say it's a good thing to have that free will taken away from them, right? It's, it's, it's obviously a very, very old debate I'm talking about here. But oh, hey, it's Grey Worm, who, <laughs> who was played really well by Jacob Anderson in The Throne Show. Apparently his new series, Interview with a Vampire, is a total banger too, but I want to take this moment to recommend one of his songs. He's actually a fantastic DJ and rapper under the name Rally Richie, and the song mm -hmm. The Greatest is a total banger. I recommend you check it out. It'd probably be on King Robert's Spotify Wrapped, for sure. <laughs> it's just that on a loop endlessly. Grey Worm was chosen as commander by his peers, which points to both his leadership skills and also Danny's forward thinking in terms of command. In Westeros, in our real world, leadership and command often falls to nobles, regardless of their military acumen. The more noble, the more command you had. While Danny herself may descend from nobility, most of her followers are anything but, and building a more egalitarian or democratic command structure has obvious benefits, at least in the early going. There's a parallel here to the Russian army in 1917, which chose its own leaders for a time when the left-leaning rank and file broke ideologically with the right-wing officer elite. Danny also abolishes the Astapor enforced custom of swapping names daily. They are now free to take whatever name they wish. Grey Worm's story of keeping his name on the day of Danny's liberation is very touching, and a stark contrast with other characters in the story changing their names. Very often, whether it's Arya in Harrenhal or Sansa in the Vale or Theon in the Dreadfort, a new name is either forced onto them or taken under some form of duress or, and or evasion of harm. Very few times in the series is someone taking, or in this case keeping, a new name truly liberatory, which is another plus in the early days of Danny's campaigns. We never learn why exactly the Unsullied overwhelmingly choose Grey Worm to lead them, but I think you can kind of tell why just from his personality. As Jorah says, he's hard but fair, and he's fiercely intelligent. Remember, the Masters of Astapor told Danny that she would have to set her own officers over the Unsullied because they've been trained to obey, not to think. Turns out that was total bullshit. <laughs> the real reason they told her to put her own officers over the Unsullied was to prevent the Unsullied from thinking for themselves. Danny does put Jorah in charge of Grey Worm, but only in an educational sense, to train him to command the Unsullied on his own. It seems like it's working. And yeah, I, I love the part where Grey Worm keeps that name. It's, it's very bittersweet. He's acknowledging that there's no way back to the life he lived before he was abducted by the torture factory. And that's okay. Maybe that life wasn't that great if it led to him being abducted by the torture factory. <laughs> if we look back, we are lost. The world began again the day Danny unleashed Dragonfire on the status quo. That day is lucky, Grey Worm says. It's sacred to him. Blessed. Rather than pretend he can return to the past, he will mark that day in his memory by keeping his name. And yeah, I love that, that contrast you brought up with the other characters, the more prominent characters, the POV characters who, whose names get changed. And while uh, their old lives maybe necessarily weren't great, like, you know, Arya didn't really love her life at Winterfell, <laughs> Theon was never really happy, but it starts, those names start to stand in for a, a life that they want to get back to or the life they wish they were living instead of the present moment. Whereas for Grey Worm, it's, it's kind of the opposite of that in a, in a really powerful way. He's trying to take away the master's power by using their insults as symbols of his liberation. The transition isn't, you know, seamless, of course. <laughs> Grey Worm's name might be a positive holdover from the old world, at least for him, but there are some other habits bred too deeply to shake. 
Grey Worm can't stop calling himself this one, and he takes pride and pleasure in being better at killing than his equivalents in Yunkai, who, as he says, were trained as sex slaves, not warriors. Which, great, that'll make them so easy to kill, hooray! I get why Grey Worm is saying it. He's trying to sell himself and his men to Danny in the sense that he's trying to demonstrate value, prove that they are worthy of her significant investment in them. But it's heartbreaking that Grey Worm's way of demonstrating his worth is boasting that he can wipe out the people unlucky enough to still be in chains. It's not their fault they weren't trained to fight. It's not their fault they're being sent out here as if they can. What a farce it is to take a group of slaves who were castrated as part of being trained to fight and then put them up against another set of slaves who are the total opposite, trained to fuck and unable to fight. Sure, the Unsullied would easily win that battle, but such a battle is an obscenity in itself, unless it's part of a larger strategy to free them all, which is what Danny is trying to bring about in this chapter. The larger contingent of Danny's base are the freedmen, former enslaved peoples from Astapor who decided to follow Daenerys rather than stay back under the rule of her appointed council. The freedmen pose an interesting challenge to Daenerys. On one hand, they are a powerful political symbol, direct material proof of her liberatory aims. On the other hand, they are a policy and military liability. They do not have tents or arms or discipline. They outnumber her actual army five to one, and most of them are not able-bodied men of fighting age. They bring little food with them, so they eat the countryside as they go. We've talked about this in other chapters set in Westeros, and specifically Rob's attempts to keep his men fed while the Riverlands is despoiled by war. The lands of Slaver's Bay have not seen war yet in our story, but it is not as lush as the Riverlands, nor does Danny currently have time or the inclination to do agrarian reforms as she pushes her conquest forward. Sir Jorah and her blood riders tell Danny to just shoo them off, but she knows that undercuts the image of Liberator she wishes to project. She also gets that would likely mean doom for them, at least to destitution or re-enslavement. It's a double-edged sword, one that will complicate as her story progresses. The number of freedmen in tow will more than double after she takes Yunkai, exacerbating the problems already detailed, but we'll also see some positives in terms of Sir Barristan Whitebeard start organizing and training the freedmen, forming their own companies such as the Stalwart Shields, Mother's Men, and the Free Brothers. In that sense, the freedmen have a lot of potential given their numbers, but that will only realize itself if Danny can provide for their material needs first, food, shelter, and later avoiding the bloody flux. So here we get the flip side to what I was saying about the Unsullied. The freedmen are, well, free, arguably more so than the Unsullied will ever be. Now, of course, they suffered tremendously under slavery as well. Many were raped, beaten, mutilated. Many took psychological damage they may never recover from. But they don't have that enforced sense of discipline, that inability to sleep in an unfortified camp. On one hand, that's a good thing. That's what freedom looks like. They get to make their own choices, go where they please, do what they want. On the other hand, that makes them tremendously vulnerable, as Danny thinks. The Unsullied would be able to withstand a cavalry charge from the cell swords working for Yunkai, but the other freedmen would be slaughtered. Moreover, while the Unsullied function as a coherent, cohesive unit, the other freedmen don't trust each other. George writes that those lucky enough to have horses or other steeds sleep next to them, out of fear they'll be stolen. All they really have in common is her. That's why they're here. Danny sums up the contradiction perfectly. I told them they were free. I can't turn around and say now they're not free to follow me. Their presence is bad for the cause in all sorts of logistical ways. She can barely keep them fed, and their camp later becomes a vector for disease. But she can't just get rid of them for the sake of the cause, because they are the cause, right? 
Danny's fighting for a world in which a human being is not reduced to a positive or negative number, where it's not all about your utility for the people in charge. That's great. That's necessary. The trouble is that Danny, herself, is now the person in charge, with interests that don't necessarily coincide with those of the freedmen, nor do they coincide with some of her followers. It's no coincidence that Jorah and her bloodriders are the ones to recommend abandoning the former slaves. The bloodriders come from a culture in which slavery is not only accepted, it's a core feature of both the economy and their ideology. As for Jorah, he chose slavery out of desperation <laughs> and selfishness. Always a fun combination. Despite coming from a culture that abhors slavery, at least in the chattel industrial form as practiced here. All of them are still thinking of Danny as a typical conqueror. She's Cal Drogo or Egon, reborn as a woman. Breaker of Chains is a cool-sounding title to them. It's not something they actually want to live by. I think we're supposed to instinctively side with Danny while also being forced to confront the logistical difficulties of her position. And I love how George sums this up, with Danny thinking she has both the best and worst infantry in the world. She's looking for a way to make them work together. Have the best infantry defend the worst infantry, until, as you say, she has the time and resources to organize the latter. So then let's pivot to Daenerys specifically here. As you may tell, I'm pretty high on her early moves as commander-in-chief. I applaud the policies instituted amongst the Unsullied and her unwillingness to abandon the freedmen. But those aren't the only ways in which she acquits herself well. Right at the start of the chapter, we see that she knows how to read a battlefield and an enemy's camp. Arston Selmy has been teaching her how to count troops in mass, and she clearly understands where the Yunkai are weak, the slave soldiers in the center, and where they are strong, the sellswords at the flanks, especially those on horseback. She understands that the Unsullied could withstand a cavalry charge, but her freedmen would be slaughtered, and her own Dothraki cavalry are too small and too not in their prime to be a countervailing force. By sheer numbers, her army could will its way to victory, easily but not bloodlessly, and that would leave her little if she needed to besiege the city afterwards. Thus, Daenerys pivots to a more outwardly diplomatic tact, summoning the leaders of the sellswords and the masters of Yunkai to treat with her. She rightly surmises that everyone will want to see the Dragon Queen and her brood out of sheer novelty, and the clever ones will want to see what her whole deal is. She plays off their intrigue to help cement her own plan of attack. Grey Worm is also commanded to attend these meetings. Practically, the commander of her infantry should be there for any negotiations and strategizing. Symbolically, it shows that egalitarian ethos once again, that freed slaves not only have a place in Danny's army, but can also rise to be leaders. And to that end, she orders the Unsullied not to murder any slaves who surrender or flee. So very early in this chapter, we see a very clear and I'd say admirable view of Danny the General. She understands the enemy, the battlefield, her own troops. All this characterization up front is what makes the latter half of this chapter work, when she plays chess against the sellswords and wise masters. By showing the precision of her mind here, Georgia setting up the plan she hatches to play her enemies off each other without it feeling forced or that Georgia's thumb is too hard on the scale. Okay, I've been really positive on Danny so far, but I do got a big honking criticism of her withdrawal from Astapor. She left the Sac City in the hands of a scholar, a priest, and a healer, all former enslaved peoples, thinking they would rule as she moved on. She must be a Democrat with this sort of technocratic <laughs> thinking, that if only the right people are in power, an, an entire empire built on genocide and slavery will just happen to become good and upstanding. Giving the, the former enslaved 
people's power to rule is good, don't get me wrong, but it's a band-aid on a much bigger wound. Bricks and blood built Astapor, and putting some nice guys up top is not going to unbuild that, a lesson she'll learn soon enough. Yeah, this really stands out on reread when you know what happens next to Astapor. A series of butcher kings with no interest in anything but cementing their own rule via bloodshed. And to be clear, that's not an inevitable result of Danny breaking chains. George isn't saying that's what you get for fighting slavery. It's a product of her failure to properly safeguard the aftermath. Her council of freedmen really could have used a battalion of unsullied to protect them and their constituents from opportunists like Cleon the so-called Great. That transitional moment was always going to be a vulnerable one, until new policies and institutions had time to settle in, become the new status quo. Until then, they needed help. I think Danny's big problem in Slaver's Bay, and we're going to see this a lot in A Dance with Dragons, is that she is half conqueror, half diplomat. If she settled on either one of those, there would at least be a coherent set of strategies. Instead, she lurches from one to the other with no warning. She unleashed hell on the slavers of Astapor, which was glorious. As I said during those early Danny chapters in Storm, George goes out of his way to demonstrate that systematically, no one else is ever going to do this because no one else around here has an incentive. They're all part of it. She has to do it. And then she puts like a party of RPG white mages in charge of the city. <laughs> she like picks three nerds, claps her hand and says, job done. <laughs> and it, it's, it's a very realistic, even relatable mix of instincts that you can very clearly see emerging from the stew of influences she encountered in the first book. Danny's sun and stars was Cal Drogo, Conqueror Supreme. But she also wants to improve on Viserys, who held a sword to her belly. She wants to win, but not like that. There's an inherent contradiction between her means and ends that only escalates over time. Look, the Iron Throne is a violent job. It varies with who holds it, of course, but there is no nice way of seizing and holding that spiky bastard. I think what we're seeing in Slaver's Bay sets up how hard it will be for Danny to square that circle. So now that we've been familiarized with the new and improved team Daenerys, let's see what team slavers look like. Let's start with the Yunkai themselves, which seems like a copy-paste shop from Astapor with some details changed, which will be done again for Marine. This isn't really a criticism. I think it creates a sense of common descent from the old geese empire, cultural genes that speak to a shared ancestry with slavery at its heart. It's believed that the Valyrians picked up slavery from Greek geese as well during their ongoing wars long before our story. Whereas bricks and blood built Astapor, Yunkai is more yellow than red. Given its lavishness, perhaps that yellow can be red as gold. Given the crumbling towers and the slaves, perhaps it's more akin to piss, like when Grasden will piss himself later this chapter. The city's leaders fashion themselves the wise masters instead of the good masters, and they speak their own dialect of bastard High Valyrian, though similar enough to the Astapori tongue so as not to matter to us. All great points. And I would add that yellow is, is frequently associated with cowardice, being yellow-bellied and, and phrases mm -hmm. like that. The masters of Yunkai are cowards. We see that in this chapter with Grazdan, and even more so in A Dance with Dragons, where even the allies of the Yunkai, even like the sellswords that they hire, are just, are just kind of embarrassed to be associated with them because of how painfully unfit they are for actually making war. Like when we get to the Tattered Prince and the Windblown, he's like, come on, guys, you're, you're making me look uncool just having to share a camp with you guys. <laughs> Astapor was red, blood red, avaricious and vampiric. I compared the city to like a giant tick when, when, I, uh, when we covered those chapters. Mm -mm. The masters of Yonkai are equally exploitative, but they have more of a passive vibe, living on their capital and feigning wisdom when really they're just spectacularly lazy. <laughs> 
The harpy also flies above the yunkai, but unlike the chain being held by the astapori harpy, the yunkai version holds a collar and whip in its place. Which by itself is classic slave imagery, but collars and whips can also be associated with kink and BDSM, which get at which gets at the city specialty, enslaved sex workers. Which, there is a sexual energy to this chapter, and I'm not just talking about Dario Naharis. <laughs> Whereas the sack of Astapor was a military uprising, Danny engages in a sort of foreplay with her enemies, feeling them out in her own pavilion while sitting on her soft bed cushions and silk carpets, towing open gold chests with her slippers. Then alcohol enters the mix, and the deed is done. Battle, but not sex. Finally, at the end of this chapter, bodies emerge out of the city and start crying for their mother. So I don't think it's an accident that Yunkai itself is shrouded in sexual economy. And though I haven't cleared this with Emmett, if we can get, say, 3,000 patrons, I will set up an OnlyFans account and recreate the seven size and, more importantly, <laughs> the 16 seats of pleasure. But, but how did the size relate to the seats, Manu? I'm, I'm going to need to see like a big Charlie Kelly style chart on this one on my desk by Friday. Got it. But yeah, excellent call on that. I, I never picked up on that sexual subtext. And you're right, it runs through the whole chapter in, in various ways. And we next encounter the Masters of Yonkai in Quentin's chapters, which are suffused with this intense sexual anxiety about Daenerys. Quentin keeps hearing rumors about Danny fucking horses and drinking virgin blood, all these attempts to make her into an evil sex goddess. There's no separating sex and gender from the politics of the unfolding war in Slaver's Bay. We see that with the Widow of the Waterfront in A Dance with Dragons, and the Green Grace as well. It's no coincidence that the symbol of Danny's enemies in that book is the Harpy. It's one mother versus another. The slave masters and their allies keep trying to delegitimize Danny in terms of sex and gender. It's not like they would have welcomed Viserys showing up to burn down the torture factory, but it's uniquely humiliating for them to suffer military defeats at the hands of a woman. And by the same token, they see her gender as a political weakness to exploit. By putting her back in her place as a woman, they can reassure themselves that they can also put the slaves back in their place. When Grasden loses his temper, he calls Danny a whore. And even before that, he threatens to sell her into sex slavery. And that would only be profitable because, as he says, there are men out there who would pay up in order to have sex with her specifically because of her heritage. The sexual economy is built on that combination of opulence and scarcity. It's the flip side to the world of political power, in which hierarchies can be simultaneously perverted and reinforced. Kings and queens might fuck you over by day, but by night, you could fuck the last Targaryen. It's a very complicated relationship, which is why the slavers of Astapor castrated the Unsullied, to cut through all those messy individual human complications and arrive at unlimited, reliable control. The Yunkai representative is Grasdanmo Erez, who arrives in style on a white camel and with unicorn hair. Which, uh, sure, you're lucky Dario's in this chapter or else people <laughs> would be laughing and pointing at you, sir. It's true, he doesn't even stand out. Good thing Dario's here. He makes his case for Yunkai on its endurance, its long history and walls that have stood for thousands of years before and after the fall of Valyria. He speaks of enslaving Daenerys and re-enslaving the Unsullied, because to them, freedom means nothing. But, as we just learned, that's not true. We just had that really touching Grey Worm moment about naming himself. If freedom meant nothing to him, then the day Danny granted him his freedom would not register at all. These are lies slavers tell themselves and others, whether they believe them or not. Once you are subjugating people, you will twist yourself into knots defending said subjugation, whether it's that slaves don't care about freedom, or don't have a use for it, or would just rather be subjugated. 
The United Daughters of the Confederacy used rhetoric like this into the 1930s in the United States. Some of that even seeped into history textbooks used throughout the country even up until now. Oh yeah, we, we still have people talking about how American slavers weren't that bad, couldn't have been that bad. They couldn't have been cruel to their slaves because, as the argument goes, why would you damage your own property? That just doesn't make sense. The answer is that a slave society is built on fear. Mm-hmm. There's nothing a slaver fears like a slave revolt because there's always more slaves than masters and because slavers have no reason to expect mercy. So slavers have to make sure that their slaves are afraid of them, which means not only brutality, but public brutality. It reminds me of the, the great monologue from Gangs of New York from Daniel Day-Lewis. You know how I stayed alive this long, all these years? Fear. The spectacle of fearsome acts. Somebody steals from me, I cut off his hands. He offends me, I cut out his tongue. He rises against me, I cut off his head. Stick it on a pike, raise it high up so all in the streets can see. That's what preserves the order of things. Fear. We learned that in Astapor, there was that whole horrible thing where like all the slaves being tortured and whipped. Like That's the first thing you see when you come into the city. That's not a coincidence, that, that little architectural choice there. That's to impress people with the, the horrible sense that that could be me at any time. You don't have to do it to all of them, just enough that they fear you. What Danny has done terrifies Grasdan and all the rest of them, because she has shown their slaves they don't have to be afraid. So they have to downplay it, act like it's an aberration that will soon pass. The unsilly don't even want to be free. And Danny, Danny can't actually believe what she says she believes. She must be holding out for a bribe. Anything. Anything is better than an authentic revolution. Grasdan even refers to the people of the West as savages, and while I won't defend the barbarism of Westerosi society, they aren't the ones putting human beings in chains, which on any moral scale is far more savage than the feudal mode of production in Westeros. European settlers also used the word savages to describe the indigenous populations in the Americas, but it wasn't the Indians doing genocide, biological warfare, or building oppressive class structures. And it's, it's a complicated dynamic here because Danny is both Westerosi and not, mm-hmm. kind of depending on who she's talking to. She's in this, she's always been in that kind of in-between place because she's from Westeros, she wants to go to Westeros, but she's never actually been there and all her experiences are in Essos. And by the time she gets to Westeros, I think many of the people there will consider her to be a foreigner. She spent her life in Essos, she's bringing Dothraki and Unsullied to their shores, but Uh, what makes that so ironic and so sad for her is that she's not treated here like she belongs here either. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, Grasdan's claims of cultural superiority are rooted in the Giscari Empire, older than the Valyrian Empire, as he says. Little problem with that, though. What language is it again that all these guys are speaking? (laughs) That's right, High Valyrian. Valyria conquered Geese and made it theirs. As Jorah told Danny when they arrived in Slaver's Bay, the ethnic and cultural heritage here is, if anything, more Valyrian than Giscari. That's how we got that great irony in Astapor, where the masters assumed Danny wouldn't understand their Valyrian, because the Targaryens are more associated with Westeros now, and Valyrian is what we speak over here. Danny is making war on her own very distant cousins. So, like any claim of cultural superiority, Grazan's little speech here isn't an objective reflection of historical realities. It's a political choice. The masters claim Giscari heritage because it connects them to a history of unbroken power and might, skipping over the part where they got their asses kicked by the dragon riders whose language they speak. And yet, here Danny is to do it all over again. Disrupting the story the masters tell themselves about themselves, reminding them they're mortal. I think that's part of why they resist her so bitterly. Obviously, it's mostly out of outrage that she dared to free their slaves, but it's also because she is a nightmare summoned from their unique history. The dragons come again. What we pretend didn't happen. Despite Grasdan's talk of blood and chains, 
He's not here to incite Daenerys to war. Instead, he tries to buy her off with gold, gold like the walls of Yunkai. Slavery is profitable to those at the top of the pyramid, quite literally the case in Slaver's Bay. Danny ponders how much more may be inside those walls. Grazden sadly does not have a copy of Storm of Swords, so he isn't privy to Danny's interiority from the last few Astapor chapters. We, the reader, are increasingly aware of the scope creep in Danny's conquest. Liberation is now an active tenant of her platform. She's not in Yunkai to blood her unsullied or to plunder the city for gold, though both have their place. She's here to free slaves, which she expects done within three days. All slaves freed and let out of the city with as much as they can carry in payment for years of chattel slavery. And this is where Danny makes her big mistake with Yunkai, like the mistake of leaving her new government unprotected in Astapor. It's a mistake rooted in a failure to think in terms of systems rather than individuals. If you purely think about slavery in terms of individual people who are currently being denied their freedom, then Danny's plan makes perfect sense. Get those people out of chains. Give them as much as they can carry. That's the most you can do, right? That's ending slavery. But if you think in terms of systems, you realize that Danny has not actually ended slavery in Yunkai at all. She's left the entire structure of it in place. Sure, the masters have lost some material possessions along with the current generation of slaves, but they still have everything they need to generate wealth. They still have their land, their mansions and palaces, and above all, they still have enough cash on hand to buy allies, all those chests full of gold. What happens next is totally predictable. The wise masters wait until Danny is just over the horizon, and then go out and recruit a bunch of other slave powers to come help them get all their shit back from her. If she had seized control of the means of production, they wouldn't be able to do that. Take those two big mistakes away. You safeguard the new regime in Astapor, and you actually dismantle the old one in Yunkai, and everything else changes. I'm sure Karth and Volantis and all the other slaver powers would still make their own moves against Danny, but when they showed up in Slaver's Bay, they would, fra- they would face three cities united against them under her rule. In that scenario, maybe she wouldn't have been forced into all the retreats and compromises she comes to hate so much in A Dance with Dragons. Now, to be fair, it's not like the wise masters of Yunkai would be on board with giving up literally everything <laughs> in exchange for their lives. In that scenario, Danny, even after winning the battle, would probably have to attack the city outright. That means blood, and that bothers her. We see that early on in the chapter when she's talking to Jorah. We can take the city easily, but not bloodlessly. And while Danny soaked Astapor in blood, it all belonged to the slavers, who, like I said about the bloody mummers, had it coming if anyone does. More would die in Yunkai, more of her own soldiers, and probably more civilians in the chaos. Danny wants to avoid that, and good for her. She's one of the few people trying. But look at the consequences of that restraint. She winds up violating Machiavelli's big rule. If you come at the king, you best not miss. She's left her enemies with enough power intact to start rolling back her revolution. Which leads to Barristan making war on them anyway. Like I said, Danny is caught between war and peace, conquest and diplomacy. She wants both at once. Grazdan then calls Daenerys mad in response, and I really don't want to touch that in my first Daenerys episode. (laughs) I'll also not touch the dragon trying to burn him alive. She does keep that sexual imagery running, though, referring to Drogon's fires as a warm kiss, though in opposite effect to the warm kisses Thoros gives Beric in those Arya chapters. And this moment I feel like really sets the pattern for Danny going forward, like I was saying about the chapter as a whole. Like, yeah, I, I guess Danny does technically breach protocol here, but, but it's so minor. As she says, Grazdan lost nothing more than the fringe of his Tokar. I guarantee he has dozens of others back in Yunkai. <laughs> but once that moment has gone through the rumor mill, inflated by gossip and ideology, it becomes 
Danny tortures envoys. Extra, extra. Read all about it. That's what Tyrion sees when he gets to Essos in A Dance with Dragons. The way George plays with perspective in the POV structure is especially important for Danny because, as I've said before, we never see her through anyone else's eyes. She only comes up in discussion in other people's chapters, and then so everything she does can be distorted and exa- exaggerated and take on a life of its own. So we've actually gone a bit out of order here. The Yunkai are the last of the three parties to treat with Danny in this chapter. The second act of Daenerys 4 plays like Tyrion 4, A Clash of Kings, the one where he meets Pycelle, Littlefinger, and Varys in turn to figure out who Cersei's mole is. We'll get to Daenerys' own plan a bit later, but first we should talk about these sellswords. We've met sellswords, or mercenaries, in our story already, Bronn most prominently, and Prince Oberyn Martell most recently. And the Brave Companions are the main company of sellswords we have met, though they are clearly bottom of the barrel in that regard. Mercenaries have been around as long as war and civilization have been, at the very least dating back to ancient Greece, Carthage, and Rome. All three would famously draw soldiers from Iberia to fight their wars. Near the beginning of the end of Rome, as levies were harder to draw and train from the regular population, mercenaries were used more and more, leading into the era of the Byzantine Empire. The era between the 12th and 14th centuries saw the rise of the free companies, armies of mercenaries beholden to a private employer and independent of any ruling apparatus. They were used heavily during the Hundred Years' War, but in the ebb and flow of the conflict and detente, idle soldiers would often form into bands and go start pillaging in their free time, a risk Daenerys will have to worry about too, presumably. Veterans of the Hundred Years' Wars would go on to form the White Company, led by John Harkwood, one of the most famous mercenaries of his time, or all time. The veterans were a mix of English, French, and German soldiers who would end up fighting on the Italian peninsula and serve of various city-states. We don't have time to give a full history of sellsword companies from there on, and I personally apologize for a very Eurocentric history. Mercenary companies would equally play a role in Asian and African history at the time, too. Ninjas, as we conceive them, granted through a Western, slightly Orientalist perspective, arose in the 1400s as mercenaries to counter the samurai. But I do feel the need to highlight that mercenaries have been a big, big part of shaping the world post-World War II, especially in Africa and Latin America, where global superpowers played out their wars of ideology and resource hoarding. This phenomenon really broke into the mainstream near the end of George W. Bush's presidency as the war crimes and brutality of PMCs like Blackwater ruined Iraq and its people just to secure oil contracts and enrich Republican leadership. Even the name PMC is a bit of Orwellian branding to take the stink off the word mercenary, PMC standing for private military company. When we get to Marine, especially in A Dance with Dragons, we'll have to dive into the very popular comparison between the quagmire Danny faces there and the one that emerges in our real world of Iraq. The presence of all these sellsword companies only deepens that analysis, whether George intended it or not. Like the free companies of old, they were not beholden to any governmental body and were free to operate as brutally as they wanted. A 2007 UN report found that the use of Blackwater in Iraq was a form of mercenary activity illegal under international law. Well, good thing the U.S. and the U.K. refused to sign that law, the 1989 UN Mercenary Convention banning their use. Don't you just love learning about these horrors while living in the Imperial Court, Emmett? Uh, The only hell is the one we live in now, am I right? I've heard that one before. I've heard that one. It's a catchy line. I don't know where I got it from. (laughs) Within the context of A Song of Ice and Fire, it's interesting how the sellswords work differently in Slaver's Bay than in Westeros. 
Tywin used sellswords to supplement his main army. They were disavowable assets he could send in to do the dirty work. Most of his army was drawn from his vassals, from the vassals of the Westerlands and the feudal structure. Stannis relies heavily on Salador and his mercenary sailors these days, but he still has a cavalry force drawn from his vassals. But Yunkai has basically zero actual soldiers of its own, only the, the slaves that kind of just like pushed out the gate to meet Danny and act like they have an army. And why is that? Well, Jorah told us why a couple Danny chapters back. Because there's nobody around here with any interest in threatening them. Slaver's Bay isn't where you fight wars, it's where you go after war to sell captives as slaves. So even when we get that guy in Marine who acts like a hero and is strutting out in front of the gate, as soon as he starts to fight strong Belwis, all of Danny's advisors go, oh, he doesn't know what he's doing. <laughs> he's never had to do this before. This is an entirely different political and economic system than Westeros. The cities of Slaver's Bay are rivals, but never worse than that, because they each have their own specialization within the slave economy, just like they all have their own color. It's not the zero-sum feudal competition for land, aka the Game of Thrones, that we're so used to in the story so far. So for Yunkai, there is no standing military for the sellswords to supplement. In this context, they just are the military. They could overpower their clients at any time, which was never the case for the brave companions. They were never going to take out Tywin or Roose Bolton. That was never in the cards. We start to see this play out in A Dance with Dragons, where the Yunkish masters are so incompetent that the tattered prince, commander of the Windblown, immediately starts wondering if he'd be better off working for Danny after all, and sends in a bunch of his Windblown, including Team Quentin, to test the waters. And even after Brown Ben Plum abandons Danny, he quickly regrets that, and as the Winds of Winter begins, is swayed by Tyrion to rejoin the Queen. That's how bad the Yunkish are at this. <laughs> and that's why Danny's ploy is so smart. It's always a good idea to meet with people separately, like you were saying about Tyrion. It lets you control information, drum up some good old-fashioned paranoia. But I think Danny senses that this enemy coalition specifically is ripe for some dividing and conquering. To that end, Danny treats with the Storm Crows first, who Jorah brings in at midday. The three commanders wear black feathers on their helms, presumably calling out to the four crows between crossing lightning on the banner as described in the chapter's opening. They're probably not calling out to the real world Storm Crow, which is a yellow-billed cuckoo and not really known for its black feathers. Interestingly enough, in one of Barristan's The Wind of Winter preview chapters, the standard the Storm Crows carry into war is described as a dozen ragged black streamers on a tall staff topped by a carved wooden crow. That could mean absolutely nothing, you know, just like in the case of Renly's eye color. Or it could perhaps refer to the Storm Crows doing some light rebranding after Dario seizes control. Our own real life sees this play out time after time, especially during corporate takeovers. We may all live this truth again when we stream House of the Dragon Season 2 on Discovery Plus or Max Prime or whatever <laughs> new SEO Zasloff comes up with. Max power like Homer. <laughs> The phrase Stormcrow has been used in fiction to refer to prophets and diviners, but it is perhaps most famously used to describe Gandalf the White when he confronts a Sauron enraptured Theoden in Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. I can definitely see George lifting the phrase for his own work for no other reason than, hey, that sounds cool. When rereading Lord of the Rings, I get the same notion whenever I see Tolkien use the phrase, shade of the evening. Like, yeah, that sounds dope. Let's work with it. <laughs> Of the three commanders of the Stormcrows, we have D Dario Naharis and two guys who don't really matter. <laughs> I'm saying that with some anxiety because Emmett may be sitting on the greatest analysis of Prendalna Gazan that the world has ever seen. Well, actually, no, no, don't worry about it. I'm not. 
The only real characterization we get about Salor the Bald, aside from him being bald, I guess, is that he likes to pick his nose. Prendal is slightly more of a character than Salor, though not by much. Giscari by birth, Prendal likely lost friends and family during the sack of Astapor and has absolutely nothing but enmity for Daenerys Targaryen. He seems to talk for all the leadership in this parlay and even tries to toss Daenerys' gender at her, but that's after she had already dropped her I am only a young girl who does not understand the ways of war shtick. Daenerys has already wrapped her gender around her like armor so that, so that it cannot be used against her. Tyrion would be so proud. So Prendel giving into misogyny after da- Daenerys has already shut th- down that line of attack just ma- lets it all wash over her with not much more than a chuckle. Daenerys does know how to poke at the vulnerabilities of the sellswords, though. Sellswords are notoriously fickle, and when you don't answer to one sovereign or another, the option to flee and fight another day is far more tempting than amongst the conscripted soldiers of feudal lords. And if all you care about is money, well, you can be bought. Daenerys can pay more. It's how Tyrion won Bronn to his side in the Mountains of the Moon. Prendal still refuses, and Daenerys tries her third gambit. You might be an obstinate asshole, but what about your men? Perhaps fighting with the Dragon Queen would be more appealing to them, something Dario Naharis will prove true in a short time. His exiting nod to Daenerys gives hint that while Prendal didn't hear her words, someone in that tent did. So Danny right away seizes on the dynamic I was talking about, where the Yunkish are, like, comically lagging behind the people they're hiring to fight the war for them. Like, these sellswords are getting paid to stand next to drunk assholes and their terrified slaves. It's a humiliating situation, not to mention a dangerous one given that they're up against the Unsullied. But if the sellswords turn on the masters, who's going to pay them in the long run? Well, hey, Danny could. This is part of the difference in how Danny presents herself to the sellswords versus the masters. She's got nothing to offer the latter but avoiding the fate she dealt out to their equivalents in Astapor. But to the sellswords, she could be in alternate client state, mm-hmm. kind of all on her own, which would make her a legitimate regional power player. And yet, the Stormcrows refuse. Why is that? Do they really think the stalwart men of Yunkai <laughs> can defeat the Unsullied? Probably not, no. Jorah tells us why. Prendal is Giscari, like the slavers of Yunkai, like the slavers of Astapor, who Danny set on fire. And that matters more than any chest of gold, because Danny is threatening the entire political economy of the continent. Prendel might not own slaves, but he feels kinship, literal and otherwise, with those who do. So everything we see from him in this scene, all the, the pride, the delusion, the mockery, the feints at being a brotherhood of free men, all of that is covering up a loyalty to slave ideology that crosses a lot of lines. The second sons are up next, a company we've heard about a couple times now in this book. Jorah mentioned their flight when retelling the tale of the 3,000 of Kohor in Daenerys 1, and we learned Oberyn Martell rode with them sometime in Tyrion's fifth chapter, and of course, Tyrion's current status at the time of this recording is as a member of the Second Sons. Their sigil is a broken sword, immediately evocative of many things in a fantasy setting. My three brain cells immediately (laughs) jump to shards of Narsil, or weapon deprecation in The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild. Broken swords, perhaps obviously, symbolize the opposite of unbroken swords. While the latter stands in for victory or martial prowess, a broken sword can refer to peace or defeat. It could refer refer to broken rule or a failing leader. And given the phallic imagery of swords, could refer to failing in sex or a broken line of heredity. I think these last bits get to it. 
We see first sons die all the time in war, of disease, or just dumb luck. Second sons often have to step up in their place, something we see with Bran when Rob marches to war, not to mention the countless times it has happened during Targaryen rule. Because Westeros is a martial culture, men try to win fame and social mobility through martial means, be they tourneys or fighting in the battlefield. So sons who don't think they'll inherit end up going off to fight elsewhere and may not be there when some ill fate befalls their father and or older brothers. Some of the most notable members of the Second Sons, Harwin Hoare and Brown Ben Plum, or previously Jorah Mormont, represent houses that have waned in Restoros or have had their male secession upended. Lord knows where the Lannister line of succession is going to end up at the end of all things. So the Broken Sword can stand in for Broken Lineage. But one of the most famous Broken Swords in Planetos is the one wielded by the Titan of Bravos, standing guard over the city. The leader of the Second Sons is a tall Bravosi himself. Miro, styling himself the Titan's Bastard. I do actually like the show line here, is he more Titan or Bastard? Mm -hmm. Because boy howdy is Miro going to decidedly (laughs) and immediately prove himself to be the latter. Like Prendal, Miro is immediately dismissive dismissive of Danny, her threats, and her gender, though he definitely amps up the misogyny. Also like with Prendal, Daenerys is able to wave her superior numbers in Miro's face and the sellsword company's own reputation of running in battle, calling back to that tale of the 3000. Miro says that was a different time, but Danny implores him that the strategy may still be sound. Run now or join her. Miro falsely entertains the offer, keeping up the harassment as he thinks out loud. Danny instead offers him and his captains a ton of wine and bid them answer her on the morrow. This is one of those guys where you just immediately want him dead. <laughs> yes, sir. Miro is so aggressive and overbearing, never even momentarily veering off from his favorite topic, namely his dick and where he'd like to stick it. Despite coming from Bravos, the anti-slavery city, he's fighting for a slaver power. And you can see why. He's an embodiment of avaricious greed. As soon as Danny offers him some wine, he starts negotiating for more. It's a different kind of threat than the one posed by the Stormcrows. Buried in Miro's sleazy commons is an offer. He says Danny is worth following, which is more than she got out of Brendel. So Danny has to know how to handle a guy like this. Ignore the in-your-face awfulness and zero in on what she can get out of him. As she says, all she wants out of him are his 500 swords. Even though Danny is blatantly playing with Miro, she can sense Jorah growing angry, as if she's honestly considering fucking this guy. And so you get into this immediate question with Jorah and the advice he starts giving Danny, which we're, we're going to get into in a little bit here. Is it is he correct to dismiss Miro, or is it is it personal? Is he reacting to something beyond just uh, Miro's you know objective conduct? Like if you know if being a, a slaver with a nasty personality is disqualifying, well that throws Jorah right out the camp as well. Maybe he's a little uncomfortable looking at his own mirror image here. Okay, so we've set up Danny and her forces, the Yunkai, and two separate sellsword companies, which is quite a lot of ground to have covered. But that's only half the battle, because, well, the other half is a battle. <laughs> After the Yunkai depart, Danny tells Sir Jorah to assemble her men for a midnight attack. It's a perfect moonless night, ideal for stealth. Big Boss would be proud. Her blood riders will handle the scouts while the enemy is distracted, unexpected, or drunk. Then her unsullied will take the flanks as the Dothraki charge the center. Danny knows George loves his rule of three, so for the third time she drops her I am a young girl who knows little of the ways of war shtick, much to the bemusement of Jorah and Barristan Whitebeard. They call her Rhaegar's sister and queen in approval. 
Like we said earlier, Danny is acquitting herself well as a military commander, and it's rewarding to see this plan come together after we see Danny survey the battlefield and meet with the enemy. We see what she sees and sees how she processes it into tactical advantage. Unlike the Blackwater or Whispering Wood, we aren't going to see this battle. Not really. Instead, through Daenerys' character, George is showing how the fight was won in the strategy tent, in the details, before the battle was ever joined. And it's victory not done on the backs of her dragons. This is straight up military combat, albeit with a healthy serving of deception. I also want to call out the plan to attack the Second Sons while they are drunk on wine and likely partying. Does that sound like another event coming up in our story? That's right. We found our ingredient for the wed wedding in this chapter, folks. Nice. But <laughs> fighting drunk people is generally easier than fighting sober people. Sander Clegane may be accepted. <laughs> it only adds to his power. <laughs> yeah, what's really striking about this plan is how many levels Danny is working on. Not only understanding how to use her own pieces on the game board of the battlefield, but also understanding how to lie effectively, how to use her enemies' potential divisions against them. She keeps saying she's a young girl who knows nothing of the ways of war, but that's a trap, like a pool hustler who pretends not not to know how to play the like a pool hustler who pretends to not know how to play the game. And it fools the reader as well. I remember the first time reading this when Danny says, Yes, I said to I want my answer on the morning. I didn't say anything about tonight. And I went, Oh, you got me as well. Good work, good work. She's learned well, and, and every meeting she had with her enemies now pays off. It's the kind of that, that snapping into place structure you talked about earlier, where George was very patient because he wanted us to understand how Danny was working through this, and now we, we understand her victory in this moment. But before things get underway, we get our proper meet cute with Dario Naharis. Mm-hmm. I think back to our Tyrion 5 discussion where Emmett talked about failed Oberyns in George's story, guys like Dario and Darkstar. Can't say Dario does a whole lot for me as a character, one way or another. My only take on the character is I like the swag Ed Screen brought to the character on the throne show, even if Michael Huisman is the better actor of the two. Probably. Who knows? So I'll keep an open mind on this character as we move forward through this through these books to see if the lack of impression changes as we dive deeper into his character as we dive deeper into Daenerys' character. It's funny that Dario has left such a little impression on me, because in describing his appearance, I feel like George is drawing circles and arrows around him saying, like, (laughs) get a load of this guy. Mm -hmm. Emmett laid out his appearance in the recap, and really, nothing describes him better than making a peacock look tame in comparison. But the comparison Danny notes here is between Ser Jorah and Dario, two men who couldn't be more unalike in presentation or manner. Dario even flashes a golden tooth when he smiles, which makes me think of Joe Pesci's character in Home Alone. Hey, I think I'm starting to like Dario more already. <laughs> now that would be a casting coup. <laughs> yes, I would it watch would. the heck out of that show. But yeah, Dario is not one of my favorite characters in the story. Mm-hmm. I know heresy that I'm insulting. <laughs> How dare you? Big Daddy Dario, Big Dick Dario, you heard it here. <laughs> and it's for exactly the reason you said. George just goes overboard on the imagery. And I I know that's Dario's character. He's, yeah, more than a peacock. He's strutting around, showing off everything on the surface. That's who he is. But it's honestly confusing to read. Like, I can't get a handle on how I'm supposed to be picturing this guy. Like, on one hand, Dario's supposed to be a dandy. So he's got the fanciest clothes in the world, all these little filigrees and accoutrements. On the other hand, Dario is supposed to be a hard-living party animal. So all his fancy clothes are sweat-stained and torn. I feel like George should have gone one way or the other. He's trying to do two things at the same time that, for me at least, just don't go well together. 
Like, I can't reconcile the guy whose mustache drips blood in A Dance with Dragons with the guy here wearing this this puff of mirish foam coming out of his shirt. That's even before we get into the the, the yellow mustache and the blue hair dye and the three-pronged mm-hmm. beard. Just, just th- visualize that for a second. <laughs> that clashes so horribly, it makes it difficult to take Dario seriously at all. But... Am I supposed to take him seriously? Am I supposed to, Here's the question. Am I supposed to be intimidated by Dario, or am I supposed to be rolling my eyes at him? And it's kind of both and neither. Same problem with his dialogue, which would make Conan the Barbarian cringe. Again, deliberate choice. George is trying to frame Dario as someone whose entire life is a performance, who exaggerates everything for effect. The problem for me is that none of it feels authentic. Like you were saying, the author's hand is too visible, rather than the sense of an organic character existing in their environment. Dario feels like something out of a lesser fantasy story, like a much stiffer one, less comfortable with the genre. He comes off more as a blank slate on which to write one-liners, rather than a guy who is actually coming up with those one-liners. Maybe the issue is that if you strip away that over-the-top surface, Dario is just pretty much Cal Drogo all over again, so you have to distinguish him somehow. It's especially noticeable, yeah, coming right after Oberyn, who is grounded in this genuine emotional motivation, which pays off tragically later in the book. Or compare Dario to Euron, my actual big daddy, (laughs) with whom he has a lot in common. The crow imagery, the storm imagery, the big monologues, this uh, quasi-erotic love of death. But Euron is introduced as part of this really sneaky story structure, where he's hiding his true intentions from the Ironborn, so he has to act like their dream candidate come true. Meanwhile, hints of his actual personality and motivations come through before exploding into view in The Forsaken. And Dario just has nothing like that. No powerful motivation, no hidden depths. He never develops beyond the image we see here. That being said, Dario does have an important role to play in the story structure, and Danny's arc would be lesser without him. Dario is here to merge sex and war. You can see that right away here. For him, fighting and fucking are basically the same thing. He's got the swords with sexy ladies as hilts. He talks about how a day isn't complete until he's both killed someone and fucked someone. The same person? Well, that makes it much more efficient. Who's to say? (laughs) And when he pledges his body to Daenerys, he is definitely talking about both battle and bed. Even as he talks about how beautiful Danny is, like he's, he's just been overcome with chivalric romance, George describes him as looking cruel, like some overgrown bird of prey. Dario brings gifts to woo his lady love, but those gifts take the form of his former comrades' heads, which Danny calls proof of his sincerity. Hard to disagree. That dynamic really ramps up in A Dance with Dragons, where Danny uses sex with Dario to distract herself from the painful compromises she's being forced to make. Dario urges her to go full red wedding on the slavers. Instead, she marries one, in part because she's afraid at how excited Dario makes her. Dario is war and woe, as she thinks. So while I'll never love Dario scenes, they do matter, because he makes the seduction of war and violence literal, literal seduction. It's the temptation to give in to fire and blood. Dario says that he and the Stormcrows are now Daenerys's. He did the reverse Hail Hydra thing and cut off two heads so that only one head would remain his. (laughs) The dragons go to work on the severed heads of his former co-commanders. I imagine for the dragon, it's the equivalent of eating pig cheek, let's say. Dario ignores the dragons as if they were three kittens, Daenerys thinks. Like with the Stark direwolves, Daenerys' dragons act as an 
extension of herself. And often the beast's instinctive reactions to people and in turn people to them will become a proxy for determining trust. I do like how George writes Daenerys essentially checking Dario out Mm -hmm. as he drones on. (laughs) Dario says three sentences in an extended paragraph, essentially all part of one straight bit of dialogue. But George breaks up each sentence with Daenerys taking in his flamboyant swords, his muscles, his eyes, his clothes, his weapons, in that order. She starts with his body and works her way out to his things. It gets us in Danny's headspace as she's sizing up the man, in more ways than one. And if this is reflective of a burgeoning crush, the paragraph here creates that sense of time slowing down that is often used in romantic meet-cutes. Emmett mentioned the naked lady sword hilts, which is definitely the sign of someone who believes in the live moss mentality. <laughs> His motto is essentially, fuck, marry, kill. Do all that, and it's been a good day. There's definitely a hedonist, libertine vibe to Dario, which again con- contrasts to the crusty old knights in Danny's employ, but also doesn't work as well as when Prince Oberyn marched into King's Landing a couple chapters ago. Dario swears himself to her by throwing himself at her feet swearing his sword, his life, his blood, his body, and everything else he has to offer. Daenerys notes that it's a peculiar vow, which actually reminds me a bit of the reeds swearing themselves to Bran in Bran III, A Clash of Kings. Bran had never heard such a strange vow, and Danny seems to feel the same here. Unfortunately for Daenerys, all this flirting and checking out is happening in the presence of Jorah. When they're finally alone, Jorah keeps pushing his mistrust onto her. Danny is meanwhile preoccupied, thinking back on the prophecy that she'll be betrayed twice more for gold and for love, and though we the reader know Jorah has betrayed Daenerys, Danny herself could be thinking of Dario or Jorah in that moment. And yet Jorah keeps pushing on, eventually waving his age and experience in her face, as if Danny's own judgment and intuitions are insufficient in the matter. This gets her into a boil, and not just because of this one time. This is Jorah's whole thing. Anytime a man enters into Danny's orbit, no matter if they have romantic intention or not, Jorah does his best to push them away from her. This is not uncommon behavior, especially amongst immature men who feel they've been quote-unquote friend-zoned, a misogynist concept, or as we like to call out in these times, incels. If I can't have it, then no one can. Taking the ball and going home, but in a dehumanizing, woman-hating flavor. And all things considered, Danny is being infinitely more fair than she needs to be to an older man making advances on a 15-year-old. She calls him a good friend and better brother, helpful and grizzled. But Jorah Mormon is not the type that young girls have a crush on. And Jorah's insistence on making himself the only man in her inner circle does not actually make Danny like him anymore. The more he pushes other men away, the more he pushes himself away from her. This confrontation has been coming for a while. As Danny points out, Jorah just keeps doing this over and over, and then has the nerve to act all affronted when Danny points it out, because he was clearly just counting on her never noticing. And now, to be fair, I guess, he is sometimes right about the man in question. Piat Pri really was a liar, Zerozoendaxos really was untrustworthy, and obviously Arston Whitebeard really is hiding something. <laughs> but I think George does a great job showing us how that's not really the point. Jorah would say this about any man, including the decent ones, including the ones that aren't trying to fuck Danny. Like, Barristan isn't trying to fuck Danny. I think I'm on pretty safe ground saying that. <laughs> and as, as you were talking about how he, how he uh, is trying to keep any sexual threat away from himself, it made me realize, oh, what's the one other man Jorah has praise for in this chapter? Grey Worm. And why is that? 
because Grey <laughs> Worm's right. not a sexual threat. That's why Jorah's okay with him. Everyone else immediately gets his back hairs up. It's less about any one of them than the overall narrative. The overall effect Jorah is trying to have. No other men around Danny except for me. Jorah claims he has never said that, but Danny's right. He didn't have to. She's no longer the virgin girl he met in Pentos back in Book 1. Just as she's become familiar with the ways of war, she's also learned how to speak the language of love. Jorah gave himself away back in Book 2 when he compared Danny to his ex-wife Lynesse, and then he crossed the line by kissing her earlier in this book. Like so many men in the real world, as you were saying, he, he thinks of his feelings as her responsibility. I love you, so therefore you owe me. Someone else is hitting on you? That's suddenly your fault. It's a violation of the obligation I've decided you have toward me. And I love how both Danny and George zero in on that mindset as the problem. It's not that Jorah loves Danny, it's how he acts on that. Danny drills even deeper than that, laying out all the ways in which she does owe Jorah. As you're saying, it's more than she needs to do, but I think she's doing it because she doesn't want this to be the end of the relationship. She wants to keep him not only in her inner circle, but happy to be with her. And so she says, you're, you're family to me, more so than my actual family ever was. He guards her, he advises her, he leads her patchwork military. And as such, she honors and respects and cherishes him. That she says, it reminds me of the, the kind of thing Stannis might awkwardly say to Davos. This is, this is the proper relationship between a leader and their good right hand, as <laughs> Danny puts it. All of that is to establish a key distinction. None of that has anything to do with desire. Jorah can't expect sex to just automatically be part of his benefits package. Really, that's just a less aggressive version of Miro's attitude. Jorah is blurring all these different things together. Acting like a romantic and sexual relationship should be a natural extension of all the guarding and advising and cherishing. But at some level, he does know that's bullshit, and is terrified at the idea that someone younger and hotter than him will sweep Danny off her feet. So he does everything he can to isolate her from other men. As Danny says, not only is that starting to get in the way of the work, it won't work for him, as in it won't suddenly make her want to fuck him. She's not going to fuck you, dude. <laughs> you have to find another way of relating to her, of thinking about her and yourself in relation to her. This being Jorah Mormont, he doesn't. And despite all that, she's pretty hard on herself afterwards about it, feeling she was too sharp with him. She says, finally woke her dragon, which is obviously setting off some alarm bells. You don't want to be comparing yourself to Viserys, dude. It's just like when Bilbo says precious and Gandalf goes, uh-oh. <laughs> you didn't come up with that one. But there is something relatable here in Danny too. Lord knows I've had to be harsh in personal interactions, and despite being in the right and knowing it needed to be said, sometimes I still feel awful. Conflict inherently makes us feel a little wretched inside. There's also a dissonance in her rationalizations. He will forgive me versus I am his liege. That very command structure makes that forgiveness qualified. Jorah basically has to forgive her regardless of any earnest contrition because this is what military or feudal hierarchy requires of the subservient. Also relatable is Danny playing with her kittens when she's <laughs> feeling lonely. Even making the same remarks about how my cat's teeth are sharp, but they don't break my skin, so we're all good. Say good boy through gritted teeth as your eyes roll back in your head. Yep. Danny thinks about taking wing on dragon back, which makes it the third straight chapter we've had dragon riding chatter. Uh, yeah. Both Bran and John mentioned Alysanne flying around in the north in the previous couple chapters. It's very deliberate that George has Danny think about her dragons as her children here to highlight her loneliness. 
This sets up the chapter's finish, where the former slaves of Yun Kai will lift her up as their mother. Her messiah status will help provide a sense of purpose and belonging for a time, but over time, being a messiah can be more isolating than bridge building, especially if she falls, akin to what we saw in Game of Thrones. Like so many other characters, Danny is having trouble negotiating the divide between the personal and the political. Only she also has to add the prophetic to that problematic pile of p-words. You can see George infuse that struggle into his form, as Danny's thoughts and words keep coming into conflict. She tells Jorah that Daria will be useful to their cause, that's why she's bringing him into the tent. But her thoughts keep straying to his blue eyes. She tells Jorah that, okay, his loyalty is uncertain, all loyalties are uncertain, but her thoughts remind her that she, in particular, was foretold to be betrayed three times by the undying of Karth. How do you reconcile all of that? It's exhausting to even try. It's easy to forget that beneath the weight of politics and prophecy, Danny is still just a person like any other person. She herself forgets that sometimes, only to remember all at once when she's alone, which she rarely is. If she can't even trust Jorah, who remembers when she was powerless, who can she trust? Danny is a lonely god, as she thinks about it later in the book. An image of world-shaking power so elevated it stands outside the stream of ordinary human life. But the bitter irony is in that, her, is that in her heart of hearts, all that power exists only to fulfill her basic human desire for a family and a home. She has to be larger than life in order to be the kind of person who can take back the Iron Throne. But what if the Iron Throne is no substitute for the house with the red door, the childhood she lost forever? Her dragons, as always, embody her heart divided against itself. On one hand, they're a part of her, and she's part of them. When she rolls around laughing with Drogon, you can feel it all fall away. Her name and her titles, her past and her future. There is only the present, only this moment. But on the other hand, as she thinks, her ultimate goal is to ride them into battle, or at least Drogon, and no one who sees her doing that will think of her as an ordinary woman with her pets, how relatable. They'll think of her as a god, for better or for worse, a herald of the age of wonder and terror. She calls herself the mother of dragons, but dragons aren't literal children any more than most of the people calling her mother at the end of this chapter. They cannot keep House Targaryen going without her. And that ties right back into this chapter's subtext of sex and procreation you were talking about so well earlier. Dragons plant no trees. Dragons, like Dario, only make war and woe. They can burn down the old world, they do a great job of that, but they can't build a new one. While the battle rages on outside, Daenerys calls Barston Selmybeard to regale her with tales of Rhaegar. Immediately, there is a tension between what Daenerys quote-unquote learned from Viserys and what Barristan has to say. Barristan has, its, has his own biases, of course, but definitely not the unimpeachable Targaryen exceptionalism that Viserys espoused. Contrary to Viserys, Barristan tells Danny that Rhaegar rarely enrolled in tourneys, despite his skill. He never loved the Song of Swords, which, hey, a little poetic flourish from the old bold knight there. It also reminds me of Sansa talking about her father to the Hound, about how he didn't like killing. He viewed it more as his duty than his joy. I also love Barristan referring to the Song of Swords because it contrasts nicely with Rhaegar's love of music and his harp. Danny keeps pressing Barristan on tourneys, though. She really wants to know how often Rhaegar qualified for the Final Four. <laughs> hey, a topical sports reference. Happy March Madness, everyone. We did it. Rhaegar made the championship game at Storm's End, where he tilted against Daddy Stefan Baratheon, Oberyn Martell, Simon Toyne, and Arthur Dane. Some real heavy hitters. 
Rhaegar lost in the final tilt against some other member of the Kingsguard, which, according to Jamie A. Storm of Swords, was none other than Barristan himself. It's interesting digging into reasons why Barristan would elide his own involvement. On the basis of subversion, Arston can't say it was him, this lowly squire, and he can't say the name Barristan lest it lead to revealing his identity. So it's probably just to simply keep his ruse going. But maybe he also feels some level of shame or sadness about unhorsing the crown prince, the now dead crown prince, kind of in the same way Ned told King Robert that no one would want to harm him in the melee. But all of this comes with a bit of an asterisk. Someone was taking performance-enhancing drugs. Gasp. Okay, no, this isn't a Barry Bond situation, <laughs> but there is some timeline messiness in terms of when Stefan Baratheon died, when Simon Toyne died, who was killed by Barristan himself, and when this tourney takes place. George tried to sort this out in a 2001 So Spake Martin, where he said Barristan's likely mixing up two separate tourneys, one before Stefan's death and one after in which Robert had taken over as Lord of Storm's End. He's just been in so many tourneys, and he got knocked in the head for a few of them, too. We can, can forgive old Grandpa Barristan that. I really don't blame him. But of course, the big tourney they talk about is the one at Harrenhal, Lord Wentz tourney in the year of the False Spring. This is the third point of view in A Storm of Swords, which this tourney has come up. It's very famously the subject of the Night of the Laughing Tree story in Brand 2, and Jamie has mentioned it a few times in his point of view, Jamie 2 and Jamie 4 and coming up in Jamie 6. Comparing Jamie and Barristan's view on this is fascinating, as current and former Lord Commanders of the Kingsguard. For Jamie, it feels like the last day of his life that was truly good, a very personal point of reflection. For Barristan, it also has that feeling, but in a broader political context. The last time things seemed right in the kingdoms before it plunged into civil war. Barristan does also have a personal story involved, but we'll get to that in A Dance with Dragons. But Rhaegar's win at the tourney isn't something new to A Storm of Swords. In fact, it's one of the last thoughts we're ever privy to in the head of Ned Stark, one of his fleeting thoughts while in the Black Cells in Eddard 15, A Game of Thrones. For him, that day was all about Lyanna, even if it was Rhaegar's publicly. For Daenerys, the tale is all about Rhaegar's actions. For Mira and Jojen, the story is all about the Night of the Laughing Tree and the Craddock Men. And for Jaime, it's about, well, it's about Jaime, which sounds about <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. The Lyanna of it all is what makes Daenerys protest. How could it be the greatest tourney win if her brother ran off with the Stark girl after all that? And it becomes obvious why this is a hang-up for Danny. Viserys poured poison into her ears, metaphorically, blaming her for it somehow. And what did Danny do exactly? Well, she's guilty of the crime of not being born earlier, some 15 years earlier. Something absolutely in her control, right? God, Viserys sucks. <laughs> Imagine telling a baby that. You're late. <laughs> Thanks for showing up, I guess. Rhaegar wasn't exactly a happy man. No, he wasn't sour, but he was always kind of sad, or doomed, as Barristan calls it. Perhaps it was the circumstances of his birth in the tragedy of Summerhall, the ruined hall where he'd go and sing to the ghosts. Rhaegar Targaryen was clearly the Jeff Buckley of his time. <laughs> Absolutely. I like the description of Rhaegar's high harp and its silver strings, evocative of Rhaegar's own hair, as John calls him, my silver prince. It's as if the harp is an extension of his body, the music an extension of his soul, in much the same way our more martial characters think of their swords as part of their arms. It is also worth considering the Song of Ice and Fire from House of the Dragon, here as a reason Rhaegar may have been so sullen. 
It is said in his youth he read something that changed his demeanor, and now I wonder if it's possible that he rediscovered the prophecy that Aegon the Conqueror had after it had been lost during or following the Dance of the Dragons. So how do we get to talking about Rhaegar? <laughs> right in the middle of this plot-heavy chapter, George brings the momentum to a screeching halt so Danny and, more importantly, the reader, can get some backstory about the last dragon. But it doesn't feel abrupt or mm. artificial in the moment. Jorah brought up Rhaegar earlier, and it also flows organically from Danny feeling lonely, wishing she had a family. Viserys was the only family she ever knew, and look at how that turned out. Rhaegar is the inaccessible ideal, the brother she wishes she knew. He's been hovering over her all along. She named her son for the brother she never met. Jorah said she was more Rhaegar's sister than Viserys's when she started freeing slaves in Book 1, and she dreamed of Rhaegar in his black armor only to open the last dragon's visor and find her own face. She finally saw him in book two, or at least a vision of him in the House of the Undying. And that's what Rhaegar is in the present day of the story. A vision. A ghost. What lends him pathos, as I've said before, is that he seems to have seen that coming. He was all too aware of his destiny, his doom. Barristan says it best, it's very simple. It was not in Rhaegar to be happy. He was self-aware to a fault, so desperate to avoid the tragedy he saw coming that he wound up bringing it about. His death was with him from birth. And, you know, obviously I'm aware that's true for everybody. <laughs> we all, we're all clocks that tick down. But in Rhaegar's case, you can see why he thought he especially was cursed. George has mentioned Summerhall only once before. Alistair Florent, down in the dark with Davos, listing off all the foolish dragon dreams that have plagued House Targaryen ever since their fiery children died. Did we learn nothing from the mages, Alistair Florence said, from Aryan Brightflame, from the alchemists? Did we learn nothing from Summerhall? While we still don't know exactly what Aegon V, aka Egg, was doing at the Palace of Summerhall on the night his great-grandson Rhaegar was born, I think it's fair to conclude from its inclusion in that little list that Egg was trying to bring back the dragons, and his means might have been human sacrifice. Rhaegar only survived because he was saved by Dunk along with his parents Eris and Rayella, from the little scraps we get. So as Barristan says, he was born in grief, emerging from the ashes of his family, and their eternal ambition to be something more than human. Danny and Barristan both describe that grief as a shadow, the shadow on a wall from Varus's riddle, something that's only real because you believe in it. Rhaegar believed he was destined to pick up where Egg left off. So even though the blood and tears of Summerhall haunted him, it was his favorite place, Barristan says. He couldn't leave it alone, it kept bringing him back. The pain just hurt too good, like a sad song you can't help but listen to over and over again. Rhaegar wrote songs like that. Maybe the most revealing line about Rhaegar in the whole story is when Barristan says that even when Rhaegar was singing about the kings who are gone, he always seemed to be singing about himself, and his father, and his children. That's how Rhaegar thought. He was aware of himself as a character in a story, his choices carrying out a fate predetermined by some divine author. Sometime in the future, they're already writing songs about me. And here we are in the future from Rhaegar's perspective, and Danny doesn't like the stories Barristan is telling about him. Rhaegar thought of himself as a tragic hero, maybe even an anti-hero. But Danny wants to think of him in terms of wish fulfillment. He was the last dragon. He was splendid and gallant. Those are the adjectives she always uses with Rhaegar. She doesn't want to hear about him losing tourneys, in part because it reminds her that when the play fighting became real, Rhaegar lost. But it's also because she increasingly thinks of herself as Rhaegar reborn. And if he lost, 
that means she could lose. So she's uncomfortable facing the fact that Rhaegar didn't really care about winning, that on some level he resigned himself to losing. The only time he really tried was at Harrenhal, and I love that even though Barristan builds it up as Rhaegar winning the, the biggest and best tourney ever, Danny immediately jumps in with the next part of the story. That was when he crowned Lyanna the Queen of Love and Beauty, and then later ran off with her. I think it's interesting to consider what, thi what this must have meant to Viserys as well as Danny. They seem to only have considered it in terms of personal happiness. Danny says that Rhaegar must have been miserable in his marriage, and thinks about Viserys telling her she should have been born earlier. And I love that she snaps back, well, maybe you should have been born a girl. That's equally miraculous and not in your control. Why not that? What a miserable farce, that they can only think of it in terms of an ideal they should have lived up to. Unwilling to hold Rhaegar responsible for his own actions. And in the process, they overlook the real reason he did it. Which, I think, yeah, was trying to fulfill the prophecy of the Song of Ice and Fire by impregnating Lyanna. That's just prophecy math. Fireman plus Ice Girl equals world save. <laughs> Danny already saw that in the House of the Undying. She heard Rhaegar say the Song of Ice and Fire. But she doesn't have the context to understand what he meant. She was never around him. Barristan was around Rhaegar all the time, knew him all along. Knew him well enough to sense something personal was at stake. But he didn't get what he needed to put it all together. Neither of Rhaegar's siblings ever seemed to have considered his actions in political terms. I think because that would lead to uncomfortable thoughts like, maybe the rebels had a point. <laughs> Rhaegar kept the truth locked away inside. In that way, and so many others, he was the total opposite of Robert, which is like the little release, the punchline we get at the end of this scene. As Barristan says, Robert loved drinking songs. Funny songs. Songs you sing with people. Where Rhaegar seems to have always sung alone. Rhaegar was too self-aware. Robert wasn't nearly self-aware enough. And yeah, I love how Bar Barristan has to carefully sidestep his own presence in the backstory here, lest Danny start to wonder, hey, whatever happened to that old Kingsguard knight anyway? Hmm. But on reread, what's just so funny to me is what a terrible job <laughs> Barristan does of pretending to have been, like, I was a squire. I was, a, you know, a fringe outsider. I was invited to the tourneys, maybe. But as he has all this like this personal, intimate knowledge of what the prince was like. He talks like they're old friends. He has all the Targaryen stats memorized. <laughs> really, he only gets away with this because Danny has no one else to compare it to besides Viserys. And she is just so hungry to know who she is. Uh, eventually, Rhaegar Targaryen's Behind the Music episode comes to an end when <laughs> Sir Jorah arrives to deliver victory, a very lopsided one at that. It pretty much played out as Danny had expected giving some weight to her battle planning and setting up her character to now move into the battlefield of politics we will see in Marine. With the battle over, Danny has Jorah take care of the mop-up, enlisting the second sons if they'll fight for her and making sure preparations are made for the emptying of Yunkai on the third day. The reorganization of the second sons is quickly passed over here, but as we know, they will eventually turn Cloak on Daenerys and join the besieging slavers in A Dance with Dragons, and then return Cloak with Tyrion in The Winds of Winter. But the deception used to snatch victory away from the Second Sons here seeds both resentment and future deceptions. When that third day finally comes, she rides out on her silver to meet the masses, though without any of the crowd surfing from the show. They shout mother at her in various dialects, most notably the Giscari word Misa. All this is playing on those emotions of Danny being the last Targaryen and not being able to have her own children, though she's birthed something more important possibly, freedom and liberation. 
To that end, I do like the bit about the swell of people making it seem as if the walls of Yunkai are shaking. This was a city built on slavery, and now that has, it has been liberated, that very foundation is wobbly. Going back to the messianic vibes, it's appropriate then that this chapter ends by tying it back to the House of the Undying Visions. Messiahs go hand in glove with portents, visions, and spiritual connections, of course. So this chapter ends with her horse running through the crowds as the freed folk cheer her on. Surely things will only get better for Daenerys Targaryen, first of her name. Only upward from here, twirling, twirling towards freedom. (laughs) But I'm glad you brought up the House of the Undying, because that's really what separates this scene for me from the scene in the show, which is the scene that ended season three, which is infamous for the image of the the White Lady Conqueror just grinning at the camera as she crowd surfs across this undifferentiated mass of brown hands. I think it works better on the page for a few reasons. One is language. Unlike the show, they're not all yelling Misa. They're using many different languages to reflect how different peoples were swept up into the slave trade. After all, the Giscari cities are imperialist powers in their old right. They were doing it even before old Valyria. So there's, I think there's more thought put into it. Another reason is the context of that, that bittersweet little scene with her dragons, really emphasizing what mother means for Danny. Not necessarily the infantilization of the people, but an end to loneliness. A real family. She likes, she trembles. She doesn't even know if she's smiling. It's so, this connection that's so unexpected and like almost an out-of-body experience for her. And those emotions are maybe easier to get across in the POV structure of the books. But above all, what makes this different in the books is the House of the Undying. Like, Danny quite literally saw this coming. And that is a powerful moment for the first-time reader, watching these fantasies made flesh, this, this dream I dreamed, as Danny thinks about it. It makes her feel like the prophecies were true. The Red Comet really did choose her, and she's here now for a reason. So whatever happens next must also be happening for a reason. What might come off as arrogance from the outside and kind of had that feel on the show, at least for me, it feels like a miracle from the inside. Like Danny realizes, oh, I, I really am here to change the world. One other change, a small one, but it stands out to me, is, is that Danny doesn't crowd surf in the books. She rides through and past the freedmen, this real sense of momentum. It feeds into what I was talking about earlier in this book that Danny is, is rushing forward, ever forward. The question becomes what happens when the rest of the world finally catches up with her. And so that'll take us into a foreshadowing and groundwork for this episode. Danny thinks just in passing as she's playing around with Drogon that right now she'd squish him if she sat on him, but at some point he's going to be big enough for her to lead a dragon into battle. And just like the show, presumably that's going to happen in Essos and then happen again in Westeros. Yeah, let's just say if that doesn't happen, we've been sold like the biggest bill of false goods ever in literary <laughs> history. That would be like the wall never coming down. You're just, you're just breaking your promises left and right, George. Also, a little bit of a foreshadowing stands out very strongly in retrospect is when Jorah mentions that, oh yeah, Miro, the Titan's bastard, yeah, he escaped the battle. <laughs> He'll be back in her next chapter to try and kill her, only for Arston Whitebeard to get in the way. And after that, I am all done with that stupid fake name. Hooray. Yeah, I'm glad that Arston Whitebeard will die and we can just refer to him as Barristan going forward. It was painful just to Much do it for simpler. this one episode. I don't know how you did it for four. <laughs> I know. Well, exactly. It's it's so threadbare on the reread. Again, like I was saying, Barristan just like, well, as I know from hanging out with Rhaegar all the time as his bodyguard. Uh, and yeah, I love that it's the kind of thing that only stands out on reread because the first time through this chapter, there's so much to keep up with at the end that like the mention of Miro just goes by and you're like, yeah, whatever, you know, moving on. What's happening next? So then when he comes back and almost kills Danny in her next chapter, it's really effective. That's very good setup and payoff. So, moving into theory and discussion, this is our only chapter uh, dealing with Yunkai in Danny's uh, riotous run through Slaver's Bay. 
couple chapters in Astapor, a couple chapters in Marine. Yunkai only gets the one. Uh, like I said, the Masters show up again in A Dance with Dragons. We see them primarily through Quentin's POV at first and now through Tyrion's as, as at the end of A Dance with Dragons. So I was curious what you thought uh, the end game is going to look like for Yunkai. How are they going to shake out? Do you think we're ever going to go inside? We haven't actually had a POV character step inside Yunkai. Oh, God. I mean, I don't even think George knows the answer. That's why we're still waiting on the <laughs> Winds of Winter. That is the honest answer to the question, of course. Um, I, I honestly don't really know um, because I just don't think we can spend too much more time in Marine. Um, maybe yeah, that's the thing. two thirds of the Winds of Winter at best. So I would say we probably don't go inside the city and I don't see it po- just kind of not blending into the general milieu of Astapor <laughs> and swords and um, the people from Karth. And they're just going to be a part of that group. But I don't know if they get served any specific justice or any kind of narrative thrust that's any different than everyone else that's kind of opposing Danny and Slaver's Bay right now. It's this constant kind of back and forth thing with Danny's story, and who knows how deliberate this is because George has changed up the story structure a bunch of times. But she has these moments where she rushes forward and then is forced to stay in place, and then rushes forward and forced to stay in place, like moving through the Dothraki Sea, moving on up in their society, taking charge of my own right, and then she gets to Karth, and everyone kind of like fucks around with her for a book. And then Storm of Swords, the momentum, like I was saying, is so big in this chapter. She's always moving on. And then a Dance with Dragons, she sits in Marine and just gets angry. <laughs> you know, just like a, you know, the old thing about a frog not noticing it's being boiled alive if you turn the heat up very slowly. That's what happens to Danny. And then in Winds, I think the idea is we're seeing that momentum again on the largest scale possible. So she's going to be, yeah, like rushing past a lot of people and things again. So yeah, this is, Yunkai is the kind of thing I feel like if George feels the need to settle it to cut that dangling loose thread, that's the kind of thing that can be mentioned in passing in retrospect. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, we'll get like a Danny or Tyrion chapter in Marine as they're, you know, maybe they're meeting up or turning in a different direction. And then we smash cut to Volantis and Danny thinks about how she sent some of the Stormcrows to settle things Sounds in Yunkai exactly right. or something. Like, we don't need a whole thing set there. Again, the kind of the whole point of Yunkai is that it's a joke <laughs> and like that they're actually kind of terrible at their jobs and can't run a military. You don't need to linger too heavily on that. So I think, you know, the Yellow City plays its role, but it's definitely, I think it's less, it's less nightmarish, distinctly nightmarish than Astapor. And Marine is, is much more complicated, which I, even in the color coding, Marine, as we get to it, has uh, many colored bricks. So right away, you know, okay, this... <laughs> This one's this is a harder nut to crack. I know George doesn't want to leave any like loose hanging threads or anything, but I don't think this is one the fan base is going to beat him up about if he doesn't properly wrap up what's going on in Yunkai at the end of all. What things. happened to Grasdad Moeras <laughs> and all our Yunkish heroes? All our we have all these characters. Heroes on both as sides, as you might say. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So that is going to wrap us up for A Storm of Swords, Daenerys 4. Thank you so much for listening. As always, if you want to drop us a rating or a review on your podcast app of choice, we really appreciate that. It helps people find us. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, where our patrons get early access, exclusive episodes every month, and a bunch more benefits. You can follow us on Twitter at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, or shoot us an email at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F at gmail.com. You can find me at Port Quentin on Twitter. You can find me at Manuclear Bomb, and we are also on Instagram at NotacastASOIAF. So, next time in A Song of Ice and Fire, it's A Storm of Swords, Arya 8. One last Arya chapter with the Brotherhood before she goes off with her new best friend, Sandor Clegane, the best playdate of them all. 
We dunked on the show a lot in this episode. I will say milking the Maisie Williams-Rory McCann relationship was a pretty good call on their part. That was a great move, and it's the kind of thing that has taken over my perception of the characters so much that I was like glancing ahead at the chapters with them, and I've forgotten, like, oh, this is not a cuddly relationship at all. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> there are a couple of moments of, like, into, like, like, the banter they develop on the show is really nowhere in the books, maybe a couple of moments. But yeah, actually great, great adaptational choice, especially with both those actors and their chemistry. So uh, thanks again for listening, folks, and we will see you next time in Westeros for A Storm of Swords, Arya 8. 